Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome everyone to Teeth and Titanium episode 18. This is our February 2022 episode. Oscar, how's it going? It's good. And honestly, I can't believe we're on episode 18. We just keep moving forward. So pretty exciting, I would say. I think this is an episode a lot of people are looking forward to. I would agree with that. I would say even we were a little bit excited for this episode. We, we were definitely really excited for this episode. And I think you'll see in the interview later just kind of how that natural enthusiasm and kind of good hearted nature comes across. But we got a ton of stuff to get into. So without further ado, let's jump into current events. So one thing I've noticed, Oscar, that I want to talk to you about was how important it is to have a network. I mean, we've always talked about how it's important to have a network of oral surgeons. We've talked about how you've helped me navigate, you know, the, the process of becoming an associate, becoming an owner, dealing with cases for the first time in private practice. So we've talked a lot about that. Uh, We've talked about, you know, having a network of residents, you know, when you were applying, you know, reaching out to me about the application process, the the interview process, stuff like that. But one thing that I've discovered is even after you graduate, after you're working, I think it pays off having a network, whether it's from your externships, whether it's from the CAOMS participating in that, going to conferences, going to meetings. And because people are traveling around all the time. And what I've noticed is already I've had a couple of patients that came to see me and then they would go away either on a trip, vacation, or go back during to school. during COVID? Because I need to meet these patients. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly going away for school. For the two patients I'm going to talk about, they were going away for school. Okay. And they might develop a complication or have a question or have a problem or want to come see you. So obviously you say, yeah, come see me anytime. But they might be two hours away, five hours away, depending on when they're going to university. So I had one patient that uh, went back to London, Ontario, to my uh, alma mater, Western. And they called and I said, okay, well, your chair is away. This sounds like a very minor thing. Actually, one of my good friends, Zach Kerr, who also went to Western's oral surgery program and works at Interface now. I texted him. He said, yeah, no problem. Give them my info, called the office. So we saw them the next day. He diagnosed like a minor infection, did a lot of ND, I think, and gave some antibiotics. And the patient's following up with him. Like, it's just great. It saved saved them a two-hour trip. I had no problem seeing them myself, but, you know, two hours to my office, two hours back. So it was a a huge shout out to him and it it really helped me out just having that network. I would say like it helped you out tremendously, but it helped the patient out like two hours away to drive while you're in school. Really like the person's trying to focus on learning it, going to classes. They don't really want to make a two hour trip here, then a two hour trip back to London. So I think that was huge for the patient, but also kind of makes you look a little bit like a hero, right? You found this other oral surgeon who's willing to see the patient, probably no charge. They're coming in. You look pretty good. I would say that if I was your patient, I would give you a five-star rating on that for like the way you coordinated that. I think that's great. Yeah. And a, a huge IOU to, to oh, Zach, obviously. For sure. He ever he he ever has a patient that comes to school in Toronto, he knows mm-hmm. who to call. Yeah. You at Crescent. Yeah, exactly. I'll hang up every time. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I wanted to thank him. And then I had another patient, uh, kind of the exact same scenario, wisdom teeth, uh, a little bit of a, a minor infection or, or pain, like two weeks post-op or four weeks post-op. And this is someone you might actually know, Krista Favo. Yeah, Krista Favo. So recent, or Favit, I wasn't yeah. sure how to pronounce her last yeah. name. UFT uh, grad. Yeah. And I had, I had met her during my externship. So when I Googled like Sudbury older or surgeon, I was hoping I'd find someone that I knew. There was only one. 
Yeah, I, I was saying, how many like, are you looking for? There's, there's not going to be very many up there. <laughs> so I found one. I was like, Christopher, Abbott, and I had a picture, and I was like, oh, I recognize her. I know her from my externship. So I called her. She was super nice on the phone. You could tell she had no idea who I was, which is fine. I was just like, I don't blame her at the time. Yeah. I barely know who you are sometimes. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, this guy. <laughs> no, but that's nice. But she, yeah, she was super nice. Once again, called the patient in, saw her organizing follow-ups, and a nice like, letter, like a little follow-up letter saying what's going on. Super, super nice. And once again, paid off just having that's people huge. in different cities that you know. Yeah. And, and realistically, I don't think I ever thought of that, but I think that's a great, great point that you bring up. Yeah. Knowing people in other cities, especially Ontario is quite a big province. People, there's a lot of universities in a bunch of places. We all see a ton of wisdom teeth. If you know someone in, in that vicinity, it really helps your patients out. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people want to do it when they come home from school because they have family support. Yeah. But then they return back to their school cities. Yeah. No, so, I, think yeah. That, I think that's a really good point that you bring up, actually. Yeah, so a huge shout out to Zach and Kristen. I think it underlines the importance of maintaining your network, having a good relationship with people that you interact with, whether it's at conferences, meeting. Yeah, being a good um, person. So people like you and want to stay in touch with you. Yeah. And on the reverse side, I guess, I would say if someone calls you up, for, just do it. Yeah. Just, yeah. just, just it, tell them about you the, never know when you're going to need it. Exactly. Do the same thing that you expect someone else to do for you. So that was one thing I wanted to bring up. It's nice having a, a good network around. And I feel like I have different people in different places. So that, that worked out really well. Speaking of network, I did want to reach out on the podcast kind of publicly. Any of the oral surgeons listening, you know, we have people in the U.S., we have people in Canada. If you do place biohorizons implants, you can just reach out to me through the podcast, teeth and titanium, OMFS at gmail.com. I had a question about some biohorizons implants. Just please reach out to me. The next thing I wanted to bring up, Oscar, was we had said, or you had said actually that I really need to Oh, this Laval resident, this mysterious Laval resident that was giving plugs yeah. to CT read, MRE to the podcast. She was your hype person. She was hyping. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. she's promoting all my research projects, the podcast, everything. And we didn't, I didn't get her name and I felt guilty and you were making fun of me for not, you know, even knowing her name. And actually one of her staff, Dr. Robert Paquin, during a recent meeting, he had told me, he said, by the way, the resident that you're talking about on the podcast, because remember, he listens to every episode when he's going on his like 20 kilometer runs and bike rides and everything he does. He'd reach out to me saying, oh, it's it's Claudia Aubrey or Aubrey. And she's a Laval resident. She's actually a chief. She's in sixth year. And she was the one. So I, I, we were planning on giving her a shout out and saying, yeah, but she hasn't reached out to us. So clearly she's not listening or yeah, like she's, she's hyping like, it up. But we're done with the shout out. Yeah. Yeah. So we were kind of debating how to do it. But ironically, she reached out like two days before we were recording this. And she said, hey, guys, I'm about three episodes late in telling you this. But I was the resident <laughs> from Laval who called you out on your shameless plugs and promoted your podcast. By the way, Wendell, I'm still waiting for that money you promised me for doing it. I like Keep it. She's up. quick. Yeah, she's quick. The money's never coming, Claudia. I, I can tell you that right now. You're like, we, we, we didn't have, shake on it. Yeah, we didn't shake. We have a sponsor, but the sponsor covers operational costs of the Our podcast there's no, there's no petty cash fund. yeah yeah maybe we need a petty cash fund that's not that's also not a bad idea it's not the worst idea i yeah. mean we, we do have people we need to take out we need to wine and dine the guests some of the guests are getting hard to bring on the show now right some of them want to be paid yeah so maybe maybe we'll look into a petty cash fund but but that's uh, nice claudia, that we actually got her that you got her name because i think she deserved yeah. it yeah so claudia thanks for reaching out and uh, we're glad you're listening and that you caught up i guess on the three episodes that you were late on but hey, better late than never. Not everyone's up to date. Moving on, we recently we had our CAMS meeting, the executive meeting. And as you know, Oscar, I'm the membership chair. So you're listening to all the different reports from the different provinces. You've been on the on the executive council as well as a resident the president. So you kind of know, it's really fascinating to learn on what's going on in different provinces. It is. Like, it is very different. Yeah, it's very different. And sometimes they bring up issues that have nothing to do with you right now, but you feel like it's going to come to your province soon. Yeah, it's like a couple of years ahead. 
Yeah, so it's kind of a good forewarning. And uh, we get good updates through the membership letter on, on you know, the different issues that they're dealing with. Uh, I did want to mention, you know, that registration is open for the Iceland conference. We kind of talk about that a little bit later. But if you want to check it out, you can go to caoms.com. We were planning on giving a huge announcement about that conference and what's going on, but we kind of touch on it later on in the guest interview. So maybe we'll save their big reveal yeah. for then. Yeah, just leave it for now. Now, you had mentioned, Oscar, about the idea of doing a Formula One event. And one of the things that I wanted to say was, you know, we can actually expand that. It really got me brainstorming. You can think about a golf event. I'm about terrible a poker golf, tournament. but I'm, I'm down to go. Yeah, I'm really bad at golf, but I know there's some members that golf religiously and, and play a lot. And poker, I just feel like it'd be really fun to play poker because a lot of oral surgeons are type A. They're probably competitive. I'm sure they played poker at some point. Easy game to pick up, easy game to learn. The only problem I foresee is the buy-in. I feel like, you know, we're new grads. Oh, we're not affording the buy-in, my friend. Yeah, we want like a $50 buy-in, <laughs> no, no. maybe a $100 buy-in. It's buy got to be like staggered tables, right? Like by experiences <laughs> of how long you've been out into oral surgery. Or like percentage, like we need everyone's T1 or whatever. And then we'll, you know, a percentage of your T1. You might start crying if you see other people's T1s, man. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is if we, I just fear that if, you know, we have a $100 buy-in, for example, and you and I are going to take it really seriously, there is pride on the line. So I think no matter what the money involved, people are going to take it seriously at some level. But I just know someone, you know, they're going to think they're going to buy. Shahadi. They're going to buy. Shahadi Shahadi gonna this, be like, this guy, Wendell's betting me $100. I don't think I can beat him. But if I do beat him, I'll forever be able to rub this in. And it only costs me $100. Exactly. That's what I mean. They're going to buy in eight times. So going to be anything <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it doesn't mean anything to them. So that's the only kind of catch I see. Golf is going to be a little bit easier. It'd be a lot of fun. You can break up into groups you can have all these challenges i'm just gonna drive course. the cart around the whole time so yeah and we can use handicaps to kind of help us get in line with other people yeah yeah because there, there are some good golfers i know that for sure oh definitely i'm, I'm sure that i'm sure there are so those are a couple of other events that we could maybe have but you know we'll see we'll take it one one step at a time first we gotta do formula one and maybe just have an annual meeting for once yeah i was saying first let's first we gotta promote iceland that's what we gotta do first yeah, definitely. We need we need some kind of in-person meeting first, and then we can kind of branch out to these other things. Although apparently in Iceland, by the way, there's 18 hours of sunlight. So there's something called midnight golf. So you go golfing at midnight, but it's like completely light outside. Uh, I, I was at, so I was in Iceland, what, three years ago? Yeah, 2019. We were driving around at 1030 at night. <laughs> it's completely and, bright outside. And I was like, what is happening here? Like, I was so confused. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, it's awesome. And then it's like, okay, we're going to go for sunset and it's 11. I'm like, okay. <laughs> So yeah, it really throws off your body clock. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was I'm noticing, you know, we get a lot of good statistics on our episodes. As we said, we're, we're really happy with our loyal listener base. We have, we have great listeners. We have a great audience. We have great guests. Our listenership is going, you know, steadily increasing. steady climb. Yeah. Ste steady climb each, each month. We used to say, oh, we get 300, 300 people per episode. Now we're getting on average like 600 people per episode. But I have noticed a trend. And that trend is that we alternate our episodes, one with us, then one with the guest. And we like that because the ones with us, we can catch up on current events. We can delve into topics that we want to talk about. We can talk about more recent grad things. It just gives us time to kind of breathe and catch up on things. But we obviously love our guest episodes because we get to bring in experts. We get they to get bring their in opinion. different information, right? Yeah, we learn. We've always oh, said we learn a lot from them. 100%. But I don't know if the audience is as, you know, in love with this alternating trend because I'm noticing our guest episodes. As I said, all our episodes are increasing. But our guest episodes are consistently, you know, 100 to 200 people more than our individual episodes. So what are they trying to tell us there? That's the bigger question. 
They're trying to tell us that maybe they're fast forward to the guest and that everyone just wants to listen to the guest. We may have a guest every episode from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Part of me also thinks that when a guest is on, they also spread the word to their kind of family and friends. Or for sure. They're like, you need to listen to this podcast, even if they haven't listened to another one because they're on the podcast. Yeah. For example, I mean, Nick McCool's got like 4,000 relatives. I'm sure he <laughs> spammed this in all his WhatsApp groups. So that's why his numbers our, are just our jumping most up. listened podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, no, it's it's nice to see it's nice to see everything increasing over time. But I did kind of find it funny that the guest episodes are getting a lot more traction. That is, that is a funny trend that we have there. One thing we want to talk about in current events is you've been going quite a bit now to Blue Mountain. To I thought you were going there to ski, but apparently it sounds like you're going there to learn how to ski. Oh, now you're now you're just throwing like throwing shade at everybody, are we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but 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 you know what? You're actually completely right on that. I'm going up to learn to ski. I've I had gone maybe twice in my whole life, like once in grade eight, maybe and once in grade nine with the school trip. So complete complete newbie. Have gone like the last four or five weeks in a row to take lessons, and it's really fun. I suck, but it's really fun. And my wife also took the beginner lesson because she's like, "Oh, I'm a beginner too." That's a lie. She's definitely not a beginner. She's like skiing backwards, taking videos of me, then jumps on a snowboard, is also taking videos of me. The instructor looks at her and she's like, you don't need any lessons. He looks at me, he's like, you still need lessons. <laughs> she's so, trying to make you feel good. Oh, like 100% enjoying it, but it's definitely a humbling experience, especially when you're decently athletic in most sports and you transfer to this, it's different. Like you're learning to ski as an adult. It's a bit intimidating. You don't want to get hurt. You have to go to work on Monday, but I've really enjoyed it so far. Do you have your own gear or do you rent? Funny you say that I just bought my gear this week. I rented up until now. Now we've now I've gone enough times where I'm like, I like this. I want to keep going. Oh, wow. We're both going to keep going. And we just bought our stuff this weekend. What did you buy? I don't even know. Whatever the guy told me to buy. Like I went in the store and so I bought a pair of head V4 skis. I told him, he's like, oh, like you want, I'm like, no, I want beginners. I just want to learn. Like don't try to throw me in the deep end. I don't care. I'll buy a new set next year if I have to, but I want beginner skis. Um, so, so skis, yeah, ski skis, poles. skis, ski poles, boots, and helmet and goggles. Helmet, so goggles. Everything. Nice. Yeah. So I was, I have an upcoming ski trip, the ACOMS faces meeting, which is like the winter meeting of ACOMS. It's always a ski trip. Last week, people will remember I went to Sun Valley, Idaho, which is a very, very nice ski resort. I, I, I was renting gear, you know, I didn't have any of my stuff. And although I skied growing up as a kid, like casually, obviously I don't fit any of that stuff anymore. And as an adult, I go so infrequently that I never really purchase my own stuff. So you just rent. But one problem I got into in Sun Valley was I didn't have snow pants. Oh, so I just that's I figured a I could serious rent. problem. Yeah, I figured I could just rent snow pants as you well. Couldn't? There. No, they're like, we don't rent oh, snow pants. Oh, because in Blue Mountain, like, you can. That Exactly. Yes. And they looked at me like I was crazy. No, you definitely can. And I can. said, no, you can definitely rent snow pants. And like, I, I know I've done this before. I think it was at Mont-Tremblant. I think when I skied at Mont-Tremblant, I rented snow pants. And that's why I thought it was just a thing. So I was like, whatever, it's not a big deal. So they said, no, you have to buy snow pants. So I went, I was like, okay, where are the snow pants? So like, it's over here. But Sun Valley is like a really bougie place. Oh. So their snow pants were like $800, $900. Wow. I was like, I'm not spending this much on snow pants. So you went in shorts? I went in sweatpants. <laughs> no, you didn't. I did. I skied in sweatpants the whole week. I was literally, I kidding on Oscar, because I kept thinking, I can't be the only one that thinks this. I could not find a single other person on the entire mountain <laughs> that wasn't in snow pants. Honestly? You are like one of those people that we go out, like you go to an event and you're like, wow, that person is so underdressed. <laughs> and like you just look and feel bad for them. Everyone felt bad for you for sure. Everyone, everyone was ripping on me. People kept saying, oh, once you fall, you're screwed because it's going to soak in. You're going to get wet. 
Luckily now, credit to me, never fell. Good for you. Snow you know pan. what? means you're a better skier than I am. I can tell you that much for or, sure. Or more likely I was going on the easiest hey, hills to avoid the falling. greens and the blues. <laughs> but yeah, don't even make fun the... of the easy hills. Like, again, I'm on the greens, right? Because I'm learning. Lexi took me on a blue and I was like, what is this crazy <laughs> shit? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> this is yeah. way steeper. So, I usually hang around the blues, but I find a lot of people on these ski conferences because they've been skiing their whole life. They they go like black diamonds. Oh, there's like some that, really talented skiers. Speaking of skiers, like Riddy was just Rittenberg was just in Whistler, and he was showing me the videos of what he was skiing. I'm like, I would just sit there. I'm not I'm not going down this hill. Like, get the helicopter, yeah. come get me. <laughs> speaking <laughs> get of the gear, snowmobile. Though, too, yeah, speaking of gear, also though. But so I like I bought my ski stuff. Lex bought her snowboard stuff. I will say, snowboard gear is way cooler. Way cooler. Like. I felt so nerdy walking out of the store with my dweeby-looking stuff. Oh my gosh, man. Ski boots are so lame. They're so, and they're so uncomfortable. Her stuff looks so cool. I just wanted to try snowboarding. Did, just well, to I was going to say, cool. if you're just learning, why did you pick skiing over snowboarding then? Honestly, I don't like the feeling of having both my feet locked in, especially with my ACL surgery. Like, I just don't like that. Even though I know everyone tells me skiing is terrible for knees too, for some reason, I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. But after I saw the gear, I almost switched. I, I've always been jealous of the snowboarder here. Even their boots look cool. Their boards look cool. However, we all know when you get off that ski lift and you just put oh. the poles on and go and you're going down the hill and then you're like, oh, wait, I got to no, no. sit and strap my shoes in. No. and wait. Do for I have a story about like the chairlift? Okay, this is perfect. So the first three weeks we go up, we're both skiing. Okay, she then says she and she's been snowboarding a while. She's like, I'm going to go back to snowboarding. I think you're good enough now that like, there's no point in us taking lessons together. I'm like, okay, great. So that's good. We go up with another couple last week. And so we're now on the bigger chairlift because we're going up the blue. So it's faster. It's a bigger chairlift. And so we're on there and it's, I'm in the middle with one of my friends and then, and the other person on the side and then Lexi to the left of me and she's on a snowboard. And so obviously I didn't really realize at first, but the snowboarders clip out, like they clip one of their feet out. And so the back of the snowboard is loose. (laughs) Yeah. So we go to the top. She's obviously unclipped from that snowboard, doesn't realize that her snowboard is on top of my skis. I'm a pretty big newbie. We go off. I try to go. I'm obviously stuck because she's standing on my (laughs) skis. So I fall. Not only do I fall, this is the first time falling. I've been decent, so I haven't fallen yet. First time I fall. But I'm like, this is the faster chairlift. So I'm like army crawling, trying to get out of the way (laughs) To avoid the chair hitting you. To avoid the chair hitting me. Do you know what she does? She just continues to ski forward to where the map, or snowboard forward to where the map is and trying to see where we're going to go. I'm just left for <laughs> she dead She left here. you in the dust. She just left me <laughs> in the dust, man. We were in tears with this event. Like we were dying laughing with this. That's awesome. Yeah, no, the, the chairlift is a hazard oh, when you're a newbie. Yeah, like, and, and it, if you have a snowboarder beside you, it's a, and you're a newbie, it's a significant hazard. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, those boards, you know, they're flying all over the oh, place. Oh, no, no. But we should definitely plan something like with Bianca, like when you guys are free. Yeah, for sure. The, the so It's funny you mentioned Riddy going to Whistler. So the CMS just had their uh, ski He was there the there. same week. I know. He was there the same week. Big turnout there. I, apparently, that's always an amazing event. For me, it's always tough because I can't really do like one ski trip a year. And the ACOMS Faces one is kind of all my fellowship people. That's, that's And I true. go to all the other CMS events. So I've always kind of said, okay, well, that, my mind is thinking, trying to focus on Faces for the ski and then CMS stuff for the annual conference. Yeah. But, but Carl, uh, did would, say, Carl did say the Whistler one was great this year. Yeah. Yeah, no, I actually, if you, if you talk to people like Go, it sounds like every year it's an amazing time. Yeah. So we just got to train up and then we can go one day too. Well, I don't know if you got to train up. I definitely have to train up. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I bring this up is, so I don't own ski goggles either. So I had to go buy uh, ski goggles recently. So I went and did that. The rest of the year I'm renting and I was talking with 
Marco Caminiti, who was obviously our guest on this episode, and Fritz Keenley, who we mentioned all the time from Serge Ortho, and they're they're big skiers. Those are big, yeah, two good skier snowboarders. Good, yeah, yeah. Fritz is a snowboarder, Marco's a skier. And they said, oh, cool, like, oh, where, where are you going? And I said, oh, it's, it's the face of me. And they said, oh, where is it? And I said, oh, it's Deer Valley in Utah. And like their jaws hit the floor. Because for you, you don't you don't know what that means. No, I didn't know I what, no that idea means. what that means. It means, it means you're going to Utah. That's all it means to me. Exactly. Yeah. So people listening will know, apparently Deer Valley is like the number one nicest, most exclusive ski resort, like in North America. Oh. Like they don't allow snowboarders, probably because of disasters they, they like still, you. They still have that rule. Yeah, they don't allow snowboarders. It's only skiers. It's they have a oh, they have a, a cap on how many tickets they sell. Wow, um, this is pretty bougie too, eh? It's really, apparently it's like super, super bougie. So hold on. So yeah, I got <laughs> snow pants. Although when I told Brian Farrell, by the way, I bought snow pants for this year. He said, he said he told me I sold out. He said that was your identity of the conference. And then <laughs> that, was you. Sold out. <laughs> that was your yeah. trademark. <laughs> I said, listen, this Deer Valley sounds pretty intense. I need to get some snow pants. So uh, yeah, you're right. I did get snow pants as well. But I'm just laughing because I'm sure people listening that are big skiers, they're going to hear Deer Valley and us thinking like, oh, what's the big deal? They're going to be like, you guys have no idea how nice this place is. So that's, I'm looking that's I'm looking funny. forward to it, but apparently yeah. it's a big, big deal. So my only I'm question is, there. how many green runs do they have? That's all I really need to know. I really hope they have greens and blues because <laughs> yeah. if they're just black diamonds, I can't go. No, and, and honestly, the blues, when it's a blue, I'm just I'm just pizza in the whole way down. I'm snow plowing like crazy. I'll go tubing. Yeah, uh, anytime. Whenever you want it, I'm joining you for sure. <laughs> really, really looking forward to that. And even when, they bu- when I went to buy my uh, goggles, the, the worker at the store said, oh, like, where are you going? I said, Deer Valley. And even she, she couldn't believe it. She said, how did you get that? And I said, oh, it's a work conference. And she's like, what do you work as? <laughs> so hold on. So, you can't just go to Deer Valley? You can. Okay. So apparently it used to be private, I think until like three years ago. So you okay. couldn't go. You had okay. to be a member or something like that. Yeah of some of some club and then they opened up to the public i think three years ago someone told me but it's like so in demand that's really wow. hard so she said the fact that your conference would get like bulk tickets and stuff like that she's like it's unheard of that's amazing that's actually exciting yeah so i'm really looking forward to it apparently they used to have direct flights to salt lake city they don't have that anymore yeah. they had to fly indirect but whatever We're, denver you're not making it to salt lake city because of weather <laughs> it's gonna cancel for sure <laughs> <laughs> bad weather in denver yeah huh? yeah oh, like colorado's got like denver's got a ton of like flight cancellations that in chicago are the two worst airports i think in north america on the way back i'm flying through chicago oh, you're not coming back either <laughs> <laughs> oh man well i'm looking forward to that no, that's oh. actually that's that's exciting i want to know how it goes yeah definitely one other thing i wanted to bring up is as this podcast getting more and more popular we are getting some people reaching out to us we had a ton of feedback like this is the most feedback yes. we've ever gotten which we loved because we love hearing back from people. I love hearing from new people too, because you're like, wow, I didn't know I know this person, but I didn't know they listened, or wow, we just gained a new listener. Yeah, like, that it, happens honestly, all the it's time nice for us. us. We do have some people that are patiently waiting their shout out. You know, people from U of T, people from McGill, people from my fellowship have reached out saying, mm-hmm. Oh, why never I hear my name? But you and I, we make a point of we never just bring up names to bring up names. We always bring up organically as, as part of a story. So, you know, those people will come up eventually. You just gotta kinda wait their wait their turn patiently, I think. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. They'll come up when it's their time to come up. Yeah, exactly. But let's jump into some of this feedback. I'll kick it off with one. This is from Joel Davis, who's an oral surgeon in Toronto, who I know. Uh, do you know Joel Davis? Yeah, he actually, he helped out and he, and he was part of the undergrad program. And he also, in the graduate program, you know, our, like our special surge where we do our wisdom teeth cases at the faculty. You've probably been a mm-hmm. part of it too. He was one of the mm-hmm. demos there. He was really good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I knew him, I think when, I think he had graduated already and I was a resident mm-hmm. and we met one, some of these meetings and yeah, he was super nice to me as well. So 
He said, listen to the podcast for the first time today to pass the time during my surgery cancellations. Gotta love these morning of <laughs> cancellations due to a sore throat. No, honestly, the worst. That's relatable. Yeah. Just wanted to let you guys know I really enjoyed it and to keep up the good work. Joel. So uh, super nice message from him. And this is good for two reasons. One, we know him. Two, he likes the podcast, but also new listener. He said, listen for the first yeah. time. Uh, honestly, everything there is, is a perfect. That's the exact feedback you want. And yeah, he's very good. Was really nice as, an, as a demo, very knowledgeable, has a nice practice up in Richmond Hill. So shout out to Joel back. Yeah. So that was always nice to hear and always nice to hear from, you know, new listeners. We had a, a loyal listener, Francois, who, who we've been tracking. We've been tracking. He's his good. He is loyal. Journey. He's loyal. Yeah. We've been tracking his journey through oral surgery. He wanted to give us an update that he has been accepted in the American match. He accepted a four-year University of Minnesota program. He's very excited and he's grateful for the upcoming opportunity. And thank you, Wendell Oscar, for the help and tips you provided me. So good for him. He gets clap, a clap. And honestly, applause. gets a clap not for the tips we provided, gets a clap for getting in. Like that's a big accomplishment. Exactly. We joke the best around program about is the one you get into. Lot, but that's a yeah. that's a big deal. He, he's joined the club. Yep. That's the greatest thing is once you get in, it's just a relief you feel. I remember every year, and I've, I've said this before, whenever we do interviews, I just feel so bad. The competition is getting oh. crazier and crazier. The applicants are getting better and better. Like when you read you, some of these resumes, you're like, this is crazy. You're, you're just yeah. like, how do you have this already on your resume? Exactly. So, you know, shout out to Francois and congratulations for getting in. And now the real work starts though. You know, you got in, you obviously had to work really hard to get in, but can't start slacking as, as we've said you know residency is a short time it's only gonna be four years and pretty much your training is going to determine everything you can do afterwards yeah yeah and and don't be scared off too it is a very enjoyable time but you're going to be putting in work for the next four years definitely definitely but he'll keep listening and maybe he'll spread spread the podcast to yeah. his fellow residents into minnesota there we go mm -hmm. so i think our next feedback Oscar, you wanted to talk about yeah so it's funny speaking of feedback and at our trips and stuff so the person i told you we went on a ski trip or on the ski weekend with up to blue mountain she's a dentist too and she we were talking about it there and she started listening to the podcast and told her whole office about it and they were all excited and they have a pretty big office out in oshawa they do a lot of good work there something like 14 dentists or something like that massive place and the principal actually reached out to me and messaged me and said congrats to us really like the sound of our podcast just was asking questions, how many listeners we have, a bunch of things. But he gave us a lot of a lot of positive feedback, which I thought was great. Just from a general dentist perspective, he said he was learning things. And hopefully the rest of the people in the office also continue to listen to it. Yeah, that's awesome. We've always said we're kind of catering to an oral surgery audience and a residence, you know, residence of oral surgery. But I feel like there's a lot of interest in the general dentist community, especially people that like are really passionate about oral surgery or do oral surgery procedures in their private practice. I was about to say, there's a lot of dentists when they are surgically inclined, they want to learn a lot. So they want, mm -hmm. they want to listen to the most they can. They want to read everything they can. They want to watch everything they can. So yeah, I would say there's a good following of just general dentists, especially if they're surgically inclined. Definitely. So thanks. Thanks for that shout out. That was really, really good. And always great to hear more feedback and more, more listeners coming. Man, I think I've 14 dentists, 14 new listeners, an episode. Yeah, that's it. We can retire. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should start charging for CE. You know what? We can host it and then we can go on trips that way too. I heard there's one in I heard I heard we're gonna host one in Deer Valley next year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up we have Derek DeClue, who we've mentioned before on yep. the uh podcast, dental anesthesiologist in Ontario. He reached out saying he had a he had a bunch of uh comments on a few topics that we discussed last episode. But one thing he wanted to say is uh, I know this is something you guys already know. But never hesitate to crack that last vial of probe at the end of the case. And I like this analogy. He says, he says, don't forget the aviation analogy. 
mm-hmm. landing the plane is one of the times when most things can go wrong. And we always learn that in residency, you know, most of the complications happen when the patient's, you know, recovering yeah. or waking up from anesthesia as yeah. the anesthesia is lightning. So that's a, that's a good analogy. I like that. He says, has happened many a time as recently as yesterday when the patient lightened up and bucking ensued. While generally not a big deal, we know the potential negative sequelae like atelectasis and PPE, laryngospasm, et cetera, and can turn a boring slash routine case into the opposite. So I thought that was a good analogy he made. And I think that you need to be really careful as the patient's recovering and coming out of anesthesia. And yep. unlike, unlike you who wanted to split the bib, I was the one that suggested maybe we should be a little more generous with our resources. That's how he told me off recording, though. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm going to quarter the bib and half the gauzes. <laughs> yeah. Gotta get down that overhead. Another thing he says that Presidex is now off the patent and way yeah. cheaper than it used to be. So that was that was big. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I'd heard that actually from my good buddy, um, Sohil, who's also down mm-hmm. anesthesia, and he had told me that too. Yeah, so that's huge. So I feel like Presidex is something that's gonna come into our lives way more. He said every single one of his patients receives it, and he's actually been able to carry out more opioid-free cases, but that's a topic for another date. If you use it less frequently, you can actually mix it with saline and keep it in the fridge for a few weeks. Can always send you more info if you're interested. And that's a good idea. You're right. right? You know, he might have even bought himself onto the podcast right there as a guest. He's 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 thirsting for an he's, invite. He's to working. The podcast. He's working. He's working. He's working hard. He's, he's got a hard research, hat so. and a vest on. Yeah, exactly. He, he's he's working hard. To but get you know the what? Podcast, I, so. I would say that would be a quite an interesting action. If I was a listener, I'd be like, that's a topic I want to hear about. Oh, definitely. That'd be great. So we'll definitely add him to the queue and add him to the list for sure. Uh, so he says, keep it the great work and congrats again to Wendell on the purchase of the practice. So thanks, Derek, for reaching out. Next up, we have Lee McFadden with an extremely funny message. He said, congrats on the purchase practice, Wendell. You have big shoes to fill. Dan is a wonderful guy. I chuckled about the cost of gauze. In Halifax, we had a little sign on the wall telling us how much a gauze pack costs. See, everyone talks about it. It's the, like, you may not think, you think you're the only person thinking this, but everyone is thinking the same thing. I thought about this today when I was at work and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm taking out one tooth and this, like, we have a gauze pack the size of my arm out here. (laughs) Well, it's because they know how you operate. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be bloody. (laughs) It's going to be bloody, yeah. They know how you roll. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I do know what you're saying, though. It's you need to have a proper proportion of gauze there. But it's funny that they put it like on the door. That should cost. A that is, that is too good. That's amazing. So our last feedback that we got was also great from Tony Shahadi. He said, you guys are doing a truly awesome job. And I think the material you're discussing is impactful at many levels across various aspects of our surgical lives. And interestingly, it touches on surgeons at different stage of our careers. It's interesting that the focus of your recent podcast touched upon some core elements of things that preoccupy me as a person and hmm. as an OMFS. So he said family and children, yep. partnerships and the business of oral surgery, complications, etc. So I'll stop there because one thing I realized is that part of having a podcast and us having to come up with material and, and, and just even discussing yep. things, it's forcing us to reflect on our career, our work, a our lot relationships. More than we way more than we would i mean how many times do you just sit down and reflect on your life or what's going on like you might do a little bit here and there but like you're not going to sit down and chat with someone and just no talk about your progress and and not even that it forces like even sometimes off recording like after we're done recording we just continue to talk about our lives which we probably wouldn't be doing without this yeah so i think he brings up a good point and i feel like we have a lot of perspective on family the business side how to deal with complicated stuff going forward not only because we read about these topics in the journal but because we're actively thinking about it and actively vocalizing our thoughts on this podcast. Yeah, I agree. 
Next, he said, quite frankly, there's too many things to comment on, but perhaps the most important, Wendell, take pictures of your children and record video if you can. Document everything. Time flies faster than you can ever imagine. That's a good point. Enjoy and cherish every second. They are the why and what we do and what drives us. And it's funny wow, that you mentioned nice. that because it's really nice. And <laughs> Bianca was going kind of down memory lane the other day and she was showing videos of Lennox back when he could like crawl or just sit up and, you know, times from Charlotte. I can't remember that but time. But it's crazy how recent that is but how little it's, you how far it looks it's so recent yeah but i've just become so used to him in his current form being able to walk you run forget? around laughing giggling. you forget the previous phase and it just blows my mind every time i see this stuff no they, they develop so quickly and i don't have any kids like actually i shouldn't say it's too loud or lux is gonna like beat me up for it we don't have any kids <laughs> but i have a lot of nieces and nephews and you see them grow up and you're like i can't believe the conversation you're having with me now you sound like a little adult meanwhile a couple of years ago you couldn't do anything yeah, exactly. So I thought that was really, really nice of what he said. He said, there's so many great topics and I might add that I'm very impressed and appreciative of how you share your life and thoughts so candidly in this communication medium. This is something we talked to Marco about actually, which is we said, you know, publishing, you're very vulnerable you are. because you're putting your, you're putting your research out there. You're putting your opinions out there. You're putting, you know, what you spent years. It's going to be judged. It's going to be judged. And he, he kind of came back at us and said, well, look what you guys are doing with the podcast. Yeah. You guys are putting your thoughts out there. And I always knew that we were voicing our thoughts and that it would, you know, inside a reaction, positive or negative. But I never thought of it as a vulnerability, but he kind of gave me perspective thinking that we are kind of opening up our lives and ourselves to a greater audience. Until he wrote that and until like Dr. Caminiti says it in the in the kind of interview where he's the guest, I didn't really realize that. I thought I was just talking to a friend, which is you, but there are other people listening to this. So you mm -hmm. really are opening up. It's true. Yeah. But I think people, like Tony said, they appreciate our, our candor because it's real information. If we're just going to come on, and we, that's what we said from the beginning. If we're going to we read a have speech, a script. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have scripts. We, we don't follow scripts. We just have little bullet points that says, you know, talk about this. And then we just, we just give our opinion. And I think it makes it way more natural. But at the same time, it does kind of open us up to, to criticism yeah. or people understanding who we are, but I think we believe in what we're saying. So it's not really a big deal. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're both kind of comfortable in the position we are with our lives. So it, it, if you either like it or if you don't, you don't, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So we had asked last episode if it's worth continuing the journal club segment, because we said it involves a ton of time. Probably the most prep work required is the journal club yeah. part, reading all the articles, finding the good ones, doing an appraisal, um, talking about it. But he said, please do not stop doing the journal review. That's uh, good to know. I would yeah, he said, I would only recommend cutting it out if it was a question of sustainability and you could not find the time. No. That would be totally understandable. But we, we, the matter is... We can find the time. We can find the time. And I think he points out that it does have value. And I think I think it's really important to keep up to date with the current literature and also keeps... It's nice having these discussion topics and rewarding people for publishing. And that's one. I didn't think of that. But two, it also keeps us going through these articles, right? It keeps us mm -hmm. having to read them, which I think makes me way more involved than I would have been if probably if I'm not doing this podcast with you every month. Yeah, definitely. Lastly, he says, P.S. I think that sharing your business experience and your recent practice transaction would be an excellent idea. Thank you for your dedication to this project and keep up the good work. Have a great day, Tony. So really, really great. Nice message feedback. from him. Yeah. Nice feedback. I mean, touched on a ton of stuff. And yeah, in, in the future, for sure, we'll, we'll have a segment on, you know, buying a practice, becoming an associate, things like that. I think that's going to be a super, super popular episode because one of our biggest episodes, which I wouldn't have predicted, was the one that's how to get an oral surgery. 
But I mean, I guess we should have yeah, figured that, that out because it's everyone like that's an intern or a dental student is listening to that episode. To do that. Exactly. Yeah. Also, shout out Tony because he'd be part of the. He said he'd be down for the F one event in Montreal. Yeah, and, he, and he's actually generously invited to host all of us at his house. Oh no, he didn't write that. <laughs> uh, I guess we just, but we, just we, told can, him that. we can read between the lines, right? That's what he's we, saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's talking about family. He probably meant us. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about cherish your time, take yeah. pictures. He probably With wants us. us at his house. <laughs> I've been to his house too. He's had me there. Very nice home. I think from what I remember, he had a pool. I want to say he had a pool. It's in, it's June 11th. It's gonna be hot. Yeah. too bad i have my anniversary but that's uh that's a oh my gosh time. another 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 marriage thing that you're canceling <laughs> <laughs> all right so that kind of concludes our feedback uh a lot of people wrote in we really really appreciate it it's always great to hear from our listeners and you know hear from people meet new people keep it up. i think also i'm hoping now that we're going to have in-person events again. I really hope people come up to us and say, oh, listen to the podcast. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. Or I'd love to come on or that you should have this person. It makes us better because really we listen to it and we think, oh, it sounds good. But if you have ideas, we're always down to listen because it probably will make you have topics that are like, oh, we never thought of that. Let's do that for sure. Exactly. We're always open to feedback. So that that's not a problem for us. Okay, Oscar. So that concludes our current events. Let's move on to our guest interview. This has been a long time coming, but we were on super, super on both on both <laughs> sides. But we were so excited that that Dr. Marco Caminiti from the University of Toronto accepted our invitation. He didn't follow Nick McCool's advice. If you remember, Nick said the key to getting on the show is to reject them, kind of make them, you, you know, play hard play, to get. play hard to get, things like that. I feel like I hadn't even finished typing the text invitation and he already responded saying, yes, I'll do it. I'm not even getting involved in that. <laughs> I'm not touching that subject. <laughs> Although now that I think back, he actually didn't respond to the first message. I was going to say because I thought you texted me. You're like, "Hey, he's not responding yet." Yeah. So. <laughs> now, yeah now that I think back, actually, he did. He ignored our first yeah, message. So he sent a second one. So he did play hard to get. <laughs> he did. I had to send a second follow up. Yeah. yeah. So maybe he did follow the advice. Well, you know, touche. You know we actually came. We sent him two <laughs> messages. <laughs> touche. Yeah. So the toughest part about having Marco on was we could we could talk to him for 10 hours. Oh. We could do 10 episodes with him. We could have 10 different topics. We tried to have a grab bag of kind of all this different stuff. We really tried to focus on surgical orthodontics as being kind of the core of the conversation because he's so well known for his knowledge of orthodontics and the surgical orthodontic program at U of T and networking with orthodontists. And obviously he's like, he might be the biggest orthodontic surgeon in Canada or one of them for sure. Yeah. So that was kind of a uh, the main focus of what you'll see. We talked about a ton of stuff with him, and I think it was just an awesome interview with him. I agree because you couldn't, you can't just really peg him into orthognathic because he's doing so much. He switched from private practice to being a promoter director. So I think he was a great interview, showing really the entire scope of that we can talk about with him. Yeah, definitely. So without further ado, here is our guest interview with Dr. Marco Caminiti. All right, Oscar, we have a distinct pleasure today of having a guest, not only one that's been long overdue, some would argue, but also we get to do this in person. Today is a big day. I don't think we've ever gotten all together for a guest. So I would say he's he, he definitely earned this because he's been waiting long enough. I know, and you drove in through the traffic, you had to avoid the convoy to get here. Yeah, like there's a trucker convoy that you guys don't tell me about until I show up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, wanted, we wanted to do this in person because we're all in Toronto. We all know each other quite well now. So... Please welcome to the podcast, you, Dr. Marco Caminiti. How's it going? Thank you very much. It's uh, going pretty well. It's been a long day. We just finished our course together, but uh, thank you for having me. Well, speaking of having you, I mean, welcome. Did you ever think you'd actually be invited on? 
I eventually did because I, <laughs> I, I knew you'd match my honorary. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say invited. I feel like almost we've been waiting and we've been playing cat and mouse with him. So I think it's a combination of invited or he was too good for us at one point. We, we talked about this last time where this was the only leverage I had. <laughs> was, you know, negotiating chip. Yeah, yeah, you just lost it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, I mentioned before, you've been really good to me. You've been giving me all these patients. I only have a wait list of jaw surgery patients going right now because he's you your know, best referral. Because he's because yeah, <laughs> Margaret's my best referral. So I'm afraid now that I lose my leverage, yeah, or yeah. is that going to stop? But uh, no, no, that's good. Private practice here comes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, we're happy to have you on. Great. No, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. I think this podcast is fantastic. I love listening to it. You guys are doing a great job. No, we appreciate that. And just for the people that don't know you as well as like say I do, or even now Wendell, because Wendell's got to work with you, if you could introduce yourself and tell us some things we don't know about. Yeah, I'll start, I guess, always proud to say that I'm originally from Montreal and I went to McGill. I did undergrad at McGill. I did my dentistry at McGill. But right before starting dental school, I kind of ran out of cash. So <laughs> I, I had to join the military, not because I like the uniform. Uh, <laughs> So I, I finished uh, dental school with the military, and then I continued three years afterwards, and I served in Petawawa with the Army, uh, oh. which was an interesting experience. Yes. I managed also to squeeze out a, a UN tour. I went to Cyprus. I had a great time in the military. Learned how to jump out of planes. I, That's awesome. I learned to fly. I was on the track team. So mm. uh, military for me was a great experience, but I knew it was short-lived. And then after Cyprus, I applied to oral surgery, I got accepted to a few places. This was before the days of the match, or just when the match was starting. Yeah. But I got accepted here at U of T and kind of stayed at U of T because that's also where my wife, as you know, my wife's an orthodontist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was an area, it was easy for her to also get her licensure. And at the time, the U of T program was really heavy with uh, TM joint stuff, a lot of dental alveolar implants, but very little pathology, trauma, recon. We didn't have that much. Mm -hmm. These were the days before George Sandor came along. I finished through my residency and I was really interested in surgical education. And I had an amazing opportunity with Richard Resnick, who was here at U of T. He was the Dean of Medicine at Queens. And he gave me the opportunity to do a fellowship in surgical education. And this was 98. And this was also the start of the Surgical Skills Lab with both both of you have seen here at yeah. Mount Sinai. Then after that, I did uh, a fellowship in orthognathic surgery. I was, we initiated the Walter Lorenz Fellowship. This was before Zimmer Biomet. Mm -hmm. So I was the first fellow under the tutelage of Claudio Tokyo, Dave Walker, George Sandor. Nice. And it was during that year that I really honed my skills for surgery, but actually mostly for treatment planning and model surgery. Mm -hmm. So when you applied to that fellowship, were you already interested in that part? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I had started, and even during those initial fellowships, I was an associate with Claudio Tokyo. We worked together in private practice. Yes. And even in that one year, I would say it's not so much the surgery that I learned, but it was the workups, which, as yeah. you know, was, are the, which the most important part. Which I think would apply to today as well. I mean, I talk about my fellowship all the time. And yeah, you, you obviously become much more comfortable sure. with the surgery, yeah. with using both hands, with doing different, you know, unique aspects. But I think the number one thing you learn is how to speak to patients all the follow-ups, you know, in, in residency. You don't see them. You, you don't see them. You show up, you cut, you, you cut, know, yeah. see you and later. Off you go, yeah, off you go. So I think the treatment planning and the mental part behind is a huge thing that you learn. Well, and like when we went to your clinic on at Crescent sometimes, the ability of how quickly you could plan orthognathic, that's what it was impressive. Like we would sit down, I'd look at the patient, be like, I have no idea what's happening. You'd come in, you'd be like, okay, you'd be finished dolphin. 
and the plan for the surgery was already there. So I think that's the difference of a fellowship. Yeah, the, the treatment planning, because I'll always say, even with the residents, the surgery is the easiest yeah. part. Yeah, mm -hmm. you can teach any, well, almost anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I continued. Immediately after that, I was uh, on staff here, kind of like uh, you, Wendell, how you started. With faculty, I had an associateship with Claudio. But after five years, the, everyone's life was turned upside down because the University Health Network canned dentistry uh, yeah. and hence that the was a big surgery day. program. Yeah. Uh, there was a struggle of which home to take over. And at that time, my daughter, my third, was born. And I chose family over career and, and I abandoned ship. Not a so bad decision. People, yeah, but I, I kind of had to do it at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, what, one thing I love to do, especially with the Canadian surgeons, is you went to U of T. Who was around you in your residency? Like, who's your chief? Who's your junior? Like, we always like to see kind of give us some context for who was around you in your Oh, program. he's got good juniors and seniors. Yeah, who, yeah, who was around oh, you? Yeah. Great seniors. <laughs> right ahead of me was Ian Nish and Ben Davis. Oh, awesome. Uh, okay. Uh, like, that's a monster stack. little. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Right <laughs> and then, you know, even... Ahead, she probably doesn't know this, but Julia Pompura, like a mentor of mine, she was two years ahead. Yeah. Bruce Penn, who's huge in our community. That is senior. like a nice lineup. I was alone. It was supposed to be, I was in the year there was supposed to be an international, because it's always two residents per year. And then right at the beginning of the, the international had to bail out. Mm. So I was a solo resident. Was it was it tough with you negotiating to block his visa or was that? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, he's not cutting. Yeah. Yeah. And your junior is Dr. Blantz. Dr. Bland. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Another big time staff at UT yes, right now. Yeah. Runs that's, a, that's a nice little stretch of like residence. That's hey, a really nice stretch of residence. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great time. Back then, the residence was mostly all focused around TGH. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we were always in the same building. There were more bars and places. And, and it was a different time, there too. There was a different time. Yeah, like some of the stories we hear, we won't mention now, but yeah. it sounds like a fun experience, I will say. We used to have endocrine rounds, which I can't really <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that's a great group. And I mean, speaking of residents, we've long heard from Oscar how, you know, you were his program director. I mean, it's kind of obvious. Oscar graduated recently. He talks about his experience. He talks glowingly about his residency, but... We recently had Nick McCool on, who was, you know, my program director at one point. Had some opinions. He had some opinions. <laughs> you know, 30% of the podcast was negative opinions by him. We won't go back to that traumatic time. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit of a revenge. Not revenge, but you know. But kind of. Kind like of you were waiting for this one. I was waiting yeah. for this one. It's pretty much the only reason I invited you on. <laughs> give, give us the honest assessment. What was Oscar like as a resident? Yeah, well, uh, is this going to be edited out? I, I keep a log of maneuvers. Okay. So he has an Excel spreadsheet. They're in a famous little log of maneuvers kept over 20 years. Yeah. And each resident has a number of maneuvers. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, Oscar only has two maneuvers. And these are either complications or some funny thing that's done. That's and not bad for a whole residency. Two is very low. Okay. So technically, Oscar was fantastic. I found he was super dependable. Great communicator, obviously. However, I was amazed at his technical computer skills. Oh. Like... <laughs> A moron is polite. <laughs> oh, oh, you were disappointed in this community. The worst tech. I told you, I'm born in the wrong generation. Yeah, oh, like, wow. I can't even type. I was amazed. Open so, PowerPoint. So I know this from, you know, we did the podcast oh, every month. Yeah. You did I'd the I'd say about, you know, let's say a month is 30 days. About three days, let's say, is spent you know, prepping for the podcast, recording the podcast, getting the files. 27 days to spend walking Oscar through how to send me an attachment <laughs> on Gmail. I'm like, it doesn't work. It's, it doesn't work. It's too big. He's like, can you send it through here? I'm like, I don't know. And then I'm like, Lex, how do I do this? But I will say that's not a lie. The first, one of the very first 
like encounters or experiences, he comes in and he's like, we're doing our exam. So like our every, every program has a mock exam, mm-hmm. right? And he wants to do it digital because that's where we're leaning towards. I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm like, Dr. C, I'm not going to finish this exam if we do it digitally. Like, what do you mean? He's like, you're, like, you're young. I'm like, Dr. C, if you do this digital, I'm not going to finish. He's like, he's like, you're an idiot. You're going to be fine. He watches me type. He's like, you may not finish this exam. Uh, <laughs> type away. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the Oscar is great. And also, the, the, I got to talk about the research work that he did, that, which mm-hmm. was a begrudgingly hard oh. masters to do. Mm-hmm. But the outcomes were great. I think uh, people have learned quite And it was a fun more. study. Yeah. yeah. In the yeah. end, it, it was great. And uh, by the way, Wendell, I have two entries in my book for you. Something mm-hmm. something about a throat pack and a Foley catheter. So, but they're in my oh, book. Oh, he, he doesn't, doesn't miss them. <laughs> <laughs> and when you get to look at his like excels, then you're like, oh, some of those are yeah. some of those are serious. Oh wow! Yeah. I can't wait to grab a drink with uh, Nick McCool. And oh, I'm sure he's going to add a few more to this. You, <laughs> you might run out of space. In your <laughs> <laughs> I'm just that you're like, I need a Dropbox extension. <laughs> yeah, and that might just be the junior year. Um, but it's funny because. Usually, only one of us gets picked on, right, mm-hmm. in, a, in a podcast, because it's either Wendell knows them better, or I know them better. I still would say I know you better because I spend so much time, but we're getting to the point where you spend more time with Wendell now than you do with me. So now that you are his boss, how does it feel to rule over both TNT podcast hosts? Well, it's not more boss. I mean, you guys know my style. Uh, yeah. Uh, I welcome talent, and I support the whole overall oral surgery family, the U of T family, as best as possible. I know sometimes I'm the one that could be a little bit abrasive or terse, especially in my emails that I'm famous for. And I could be a little bit demanding. I know that. I would say. But honestly, but seeing things like this uh, TNT, uh, participating at the university, trying to get you, Oscar, to yeah. come around yeah, a little you're right. more. There's no it, excuse. It, it supports you guys. It supports us. It supports oral surgery. It supports U of T. So nothing but kudos for you guys to be able to do this. So, no, I, I'm, I'm proud to be here. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, it's, it's great to have you as, as a mentor and also to work with now. So you're, you're in a little bit of a unique situation. I mean, you talked about it in your introduction, but you're someone that went, you know, you were in academics, you were in fellowship, you're doing that kind of route. Then you, as you said, you prioritized family, you kind of went to private practice, associateship, but then now, you know, you were at Crescent and then you made a big switch from private practice, partner in a big oral surgery group practice to full-time academics. Yeah. We talked with, you know, Nick McCool about going from full-time academics to incorporating private practice. We see a lot of people that have a heavier academic side and then... That's the kind of normal. Yeah, they kind of branch out to private maybe later on or do half and half. It's rare that we see someone go from like, you know, established... Big-time owner, practice. Big-time owner in a practice and then you give it up and you go to full-time academics. So... Give us a little bit of information. How did that happen? What was your mindset and what kind of went down in that situation? Yeah, it's interesting how I, I never really left the academic mm-hmm. circle. So about 2003, four, when I started Crescent with Eddie Rainish, that was the full-time goal. But I had a very strong orthognathic practice. So the senior residents of U of T always followed me Fridays. Yes. So not secretively, but they had their week and one of the chiefs would come with me on Friday and that never ended. Mm-hmm. So you just had your foot kind of still in the door. My foot was yeah. always in the door. I, I never really had to come downtown and the chief residents would come to my house Thursday nights. We would get high on acrylic. And <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say, 
<laughs> like that escalated quickly. Yeah. You're like, where was that in my residency? <laughs> Before you said with acrylic, I was like, wait, you were getting, wait, what? You're like, can we still do that? Or like, like <laughs> and then and then Friday mornings, they'd come back to my house and we would drive to awesome. Scarborough Centenary and we'd spend the days <clears throat> breaking jaws. And so I always had that attachment with the residency. Mm-hmm. And then that went on for years. And then 2014 was Dave Lamb, who was one of my Friday boys. Uh, and there were also girls. Uh, he became program director here, and he lassoed me back to the faculty. Mm-hmm. And he said, come and join us at Sinai. Because I was, at that time, I was at three hospitals, mm-hmm. 10 OR days uh, a month, and I That's was running crazy. around the city. So having greater exposure to the residency was a godsend. Yeah. It really was quite helpful. So I started back at Sinai. Dave Lamb took off to Better Pastures at Stony Brook. Yep. And the dean basically twisted my arm to apply. And a few interviews later, here I was. So I kind of landed back in. And I will say, as one of the first residents that went through once you took over, it's the best thing that could have happened to this program. And so that kind of leads us to the next point. What are the challenges of being a program director when you're trying to reshape and rebuild the program? And, and the reason we, we framed it in that way is because I will be honest, when I was a dental student, I did two externships at UFD. I'm from Toronto, as you know, I was really interested in Toronto's mm-hmm. program. I spent um, three weeks the first time. I came back next summer for another two weeks. I was really invested in Toronto's program. I applied, I interviewed. But I remember at the time when I was doing my dental school and then when I was doing my GPR, Toronto's program at that time wasn't held in the highest regard. No, the prestige had dropped. It had dropped. There were some controversies. The scope of the program. I'm not sure the scope of the program was actually bad. It was more that it wasn't really well known. Yeah, right as yeah. much as what was going on and what was offered in this program compared to other programs in Canada. So for me, one of the biggest appeals of the Toronto program was that it was in Toronto, which is not the reason you want to no. pick a program. Right. You want to pick it for the actual program itself. Whereas I find, you know, I went to McGill. So we have six years of McGill, one year fellowship. Now I'm back here. So we're seven years later after my GPR. I'm now part-time staff here. I'm consistently every week amazed at the, the difference of what you thought. Yeah, the difference yeah. of what I thought and also the breadth of the program. And it's busy. Like, we having trouble finding a resident to cover certain things because they're so spread out. Yeah. So when did this happen? What are How the did things, you do it? How did you do it? And what are the things that people, like myself included, are not realizing about this program? Well, it's funny how you say about the residents running around and you know asking about what the challenges are. A lot of this is like herding sheep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I love the position. It's really fantastic. And, and I'm so glad that I'm here to be able to teach and learn. It makes me a better surgeon, I think, a, a better colleague and teacher. But it, it's a bit paranoia-inducing. So anyone else who's a program director, you know, we have five hospitals, 36 clinic days, 28 OR days. Yeah residents having to do research, everybody running around. And also at the university, and you see it here, Wendell, we don't have the administrative support. Mm-hmm. So I'm up, you know, 12, 1, yeah, 2 o'clock in the morning do administrative stuff, which mm-hmm. is a real burden. And you can get complacent and say, well, I'm not going to do this anymore and just do my teaching, do my whatever. But things fall apart. Yeah. That's what I think what happened. And partly is I find you, you really can't fall asleep at the wheel. Yeah. So mm-hmm. once you have it, it, you have to kind of take good care of it. But we were, I, I think, about 10 years ago, you're right. The program was in a dark place. Mm-hmm. No names or anything. No. Nope. I think partly over the past five years that I've been here, and it's really 
thank goodness for Nick Blanis, who's around, Carl Cuddy, yeah. uh, Dave Sutka, Brian Rittenberg, my whole team, Justin Garbidi, and at SickKids. These, all these things are different. And we've tried to expand as best as possible, try to get the brightest people to come and join us. And of course, Carl, I mean, I'm, I had to arm wrestle Carl to come into Toronto. <laughs> yeah. and, and he's a godsend as well. Yeah. And what I also tried to do is embrace the community at large. So from my former partners at Crescent, so Eddie Rainish and Brian Rittenberg, Peter Julos now starting with their implants. Huh. But I have, uh, you just saw him now, for Fritz Keenly, uh-huh. Ehab, Olivia from Credit Valley. I've got Fountain View, Coronation. We even have people from Argyle in Ottawa. So Hassan's coming down. Wow. So I try to incorporate these larger community mm. oral surgeons to help and they support but them that, physically. But that's one of the hardest things is getting the community surgeons to volunteer their time. Because every time you get a new community surgeon to come, you're getting someone with new training or different training. Different. New experiences, new ways of doing things. You know, it's just nice to hear, you know, different approaches. So, but it's very difficult. How do you convince these community surgeons that are really busy in private practice, very highly rewarded in private practice monetarily to give up their time to come help you with the program? What's your strategy there? Well, it's just a matter of requiring a little bit of time. So they have to, the hardest part really is the, 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 not the trucker convoy, but it's coming to downtown. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, because they'll all volunteer. If we can move the facility a little bit in the periphery, people are easier to get to. But, but it's a brutal thing to come into. I, I also think you underplay how much people like you as a person too. Like you've built a lot of good relationships over the years. Even when we just talked about, like we talked about before, the people that were above you in residency and below, that's a strong lineup of residents. You built great relationships. So people, I feel, are more committed or easygoing to come help you. And like, if you ask for help or reach out, they will more answer, yes, I'm going to come do this. Well, he has a dossier. He has a dossier yeah. of maneuvers. That's true. So he's got a publicized yeah. dossier. You sure you don't want to come on Wednesday? <laughs> Yeah, he's got yeah, it's like Oscar, you're gonna stay in practice, or you coming down today? I'm like, I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. a little bit of bribery. Yeah, no, so that definitely works. <laughs> no, but it's a great team, and I think we have to engage. It's not just an academic center. This is a community center for oral surgery in all the province, and we're closely aligned with the Ontario Society of Oral Surgeons. Really trying to get residents to participate in that, mm-hmm. and keeping that group close. Well, I mean, speaking of the residency program, we talked about reshaping, rebuilding. One of the things you're working on right now with Carl, you mentioned Carl, he's kind of instrumental in this as well, is changing UFT's program, which has long time been a four-year program, to a six-year program to incorporate an MD. What motivated you guys to do that, and what is the status update on that? So Carl is behind, he's the mastermind behind getting us toward the MD, and we're quite close. It's coming to faculty council to be approved for curriculum changes. I felt I, I'm not, a, I don't have an MD, but I find those that do have MD, OMFS, there's an increase in medical knowledge. The quality of surgery is really hard to tell. I, I don't think we can really study that. But I think it, it makes us think a little bit more medically than dentally. Part of the problem that I see is you know, there's a, a tooth attached to the problem rather than a patient attached to the tooth. We tend to think a little bit dentally, and I see it more so, and it's a comment on dental education, is that it tends to be a little bit more mechanistic and trades-like. I see the difference in medical learners versus dental learners, and I by no means mean to discredit dental learning, but medical learners, they have a different uh, attitude. There's different patterns in the teaching as well. 
So less so of a trade than, than patient care. Part of the trade aspect is we have, for example, super dentists yeah. that we're all worried about and aware of. You, mm -hmm. you see that in dentistry. I don't think you see that in medicine. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. Okay. And also, I find there's the, the, the recent trend, the holistic awareness and the wellness movement, which is great, and it's all directed towards the self rather than being patient-directed. But I think in medicine, it's different. They look more towards the, the art of medicine and directing more towards the patient. So I see those few subtle differences. So that's what attracts me, in just adding a little bit more of a medical education to the training. Nice, and good job on Carl on spearheading that too. Yeah, so. for sure. So speaking of, we've talked a little bit about kind of academics, but what advice would you have to new orthognathic surgeons who are looking to build up the practice? Both, let's say, kind of someone like Wendell who is attached more to an academic program and someone who's more of a private practice and doesn't have that. So to, to get an orthognathic practice, well, you better attach yourself. step one, you got to shoot me. That's a hard one. Partly, I mean, I can say on, there's a few levels. It takes a little bit of luck. I started off with Claudio Tokyo, who had a, you know, bursting orthognathic practice, and I basically... Right spot. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, off his reputation. So I benefited off him, for sure. You have to know orthodontics. There's no other it's, way It's not it. just class yeah. one, class two. You need to know mm -hmm. ortho. And then partly is the hospital issue, because, you know, in Canada, it's awfully tough right, to get... Uh, hospital privileges to maintain them. And then within the hospitals, you might not get lucky with the position and where you are in the totem pole. But what I find, you had Nick McCool on last time, and he said this thing that I, I, I kept it now as an expression. And he was saying that if you're not at the table, you'll be on the menu. Yeah, yeah. really good. That is that, good. And that's bang on with oral surgery in the hospitals. So you really have to make yourself present in the hospital. You have to be there all the time. Get on all the committees. Go to meetings. Yeah, go yeah. to meetings. That, I think those three elements, a little bit of luck, but you do have to know your worth. Yeah, and speaking of meetings, I mean, Brian Ritterberg was at the meeting today at Sinai trying to lobby to get our ORs back, explaining yeah. why it's necessary, what we do. And then so, he went up his private practice clinic because exactly. I was working with him in the afternoon. Yeah, so if he wasn't there for that meeting, you know, our voice is not heard. Right, and at Sinai, it's hard. Brian's being yeah. at the orthopods. There's big cancer surgeons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard battle, and Brian's relentless. He's fantastic. So you mentioned, you know, orthodontic, the, the knowledge of orthodontics and how important that is. And that's something I've really noticed since coming here as well, and, and we did the clinic together. Obviously, you're married to an orthodontist, but even prior to that, I mean, you have mastered the art of dealing with orthodontic referrals and orthodontic education, and really just, I mean, I feel like you could be an orthodontist if you wanted to, if you just stopped surgery. That's how, that's how deep your level is of orthodontics, which I will say I find in residency programs, it's kind of what you said. You learn class one, class two, class you look three. It over. Yeah, you look it over. You yeah. know the elastic systems. You know the basics. You learn about Invisalign or clear alignment therapy. Maybe IP, you throw an IPR to yeah. sound a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, like, okay, let me just let some straight yeah, yeah. <laughs> IPR there. But you really dive deep into the orthodontic side. So how did you master this art of orthodontics and dealing with referrals? And how can others learn that from you? I learned most of my orthodontics, obviously, through my wife and through Claudio, and then being associated with the Surge Ortho program and Howard Holmes and hanging around you know, really great orthodontists. Like we had Angelus Metaxas, who used to form the program. Mm -hmm. You know, we have Bruno Venditelli, Ali Shoje. I have a huge orthodontic referral base and uh, listening to them, especially. But I find if you're starting off with an orthognathic practice, yes, you do need to impress ortho because they're a really hard group to convince. <laughs> yeah. To get them as a referral, they're really tough. But 
if you can show models and say, oh, it's a negative seven cats on the left and a mm-hmm. negative two cats on the right. They're like, he may know something. They will fall off their chair. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to listen a yeah. little bit more. Because you can't, yeah, it's not just, oh, there's a little bit of crowding and I think we can deal with the mandible only. You've got to know ortho. So I don't know ortho mechanics, but yes, I know orthodontics really well. And, and that's part of getting them engaged in you and then listening to you and believing you. So, so if, if someone didn't get that training and maybe they don't have the same network of orthodontists as you do, any advice you'd give them on where, where to start? Just like, what is the starting entry point? Is there something they should read? Is there a course they should take? Like, where should they go? I get most of my information. I go annually to the American Ortho Meeting. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole section on ortho surge. Uh, so the American Ortho Meeting uh, is key. You get a subscription also to the American Journal of Orthodontics mm-hmm. uh, is key. Because we lack that, I think, a little bit in our... Even Journal of Craniofacial doesn't have much yeah. ortho in there. And I, that's one of the things I criticize about our oral surgery meetings, because you get some of the big guns presenting their cases and before and after. Yeah, this is one of your your biggest pet peeve. My pet peeve. And then they'll show the profile. They look like a supermodel. Then they flash the occlusion post-op for two seconds. And and I'm like, go back. (laughs) Let me see it. You know, the canine's still class two. There's a crossbite on the last (laughs) second. But... But that's the whole thing with ortho. You can make your patient turn into a supermodel, but if the occlusion's off, what they will at. never send you another patient. Yeah, your biggest pet peeve is, and you say it every presentation we go to, you mutter, yeah, show me the occlusion. <laughs> <laughs> go back a couple of slides. <laughs> and so you actually briefly mentioned this just a little while ago about the Surge Ortho UFT program. So how did this come to be and where do you see it going in the future? So the Serge Ortho was the brainchild of uh, Angelos Metaxas and Jim Marco back in the mid-80s. So ortho here is divided into clinics, morning and afternoon. They had an adult clinic that was had a lot of surgical orthodontic cases. And then they decided on Wednesday afternoons to just dedicate it to ortho surge. And then at the same time, they recruited Howard Holmes to come in. And he committed himself. He dedicated himself. He designed the program. And that's how it all started. Typically, in, in a non-COVID year, we would screen about 50 patients and maybe do surgery on about 30 patients. And But these are all patients that are uh, treated orthodontically by the ortho residents yeah. and treated surgically by the surgeon. So they take control. So mm-hmm. between the fellow and the chief residents, they do the entire workup. And just us and Wendell knows, we sit back and we watch them and we basically put up little do not go here. Oscar, what the? F- yeah, slow down. <laughs> it's like me um, skiing. <laughs> but we, we really make them in charge of the, they're their patients. And yeah. sometimes I'm even if I get a call uh, from the hospital about the patient, this I make sure that the residents are involved in the aftercare. I have the orthodontic residents come to the operating I that room. Was great. Yeah, yeah. So they make them break. Of maxilla, they will never forget that moment in their life. I try to get the uh, oral surgery residents to do some ortho, put on some hooks, put on some trillium hooks. I like when the orthos come though, because they see how important their hooks are yes. to us. Yes. And when they pop off and we get to look at them and see, <laughs> see that's why? <laughs> well, it's also important. There was, a, I don't know if you were involved in that case, there was a orthodontic resident who was assistant. I won't say his name, the big guy. Yeah. But, and he's sweating away. We break the maxilla. It's bleeding quite a bit on the resident's side. Can't control the bleeding, can't control the bleeding. I come over and whatever, one, two, three, the bleeding stops. And he's sweating <laughs> I profusely. Seen, oh, I didn't know this. Sweating profusely. 
And he said, oh, my God, that's, uh, that's amazing. He had to stop. And then at the end of the case, he's saying how oh, that's amazing. Then I turned to him. I say, well, listen, the next time you complain that the molar's a little class two on the left. <laughs> you realize what yeah. we're dealing with. <laughs> so it's great for them to see it as well, yeah. the struggles that we have. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And even from my perspective, so this is a great example. The surge ortho program is something that I feel like it's not, well, I mean, at least before this podcast, was not as heavily advertised. Mm-hmm. So it's not something we know exists at UFG. So even myself coming as a new staff, having done an orthonathic fellowship, I'm still sitting in all these presentations. Impressed, you're learning. I'm impressed, I'm learning. And a lot of it's the orthodontic side, as you said. I'm learning tips and tricks from the orthodontics. I feel like the surgery side we learn, yep. we know, I kind of get that. But the orthodontic side is huge, and I think it improves your communication with your orthodontic referrals. Yep. And the orthodontists also themselves, once they get out, because I still, a lot of them will connect back with me or ask me questions, they are much more surgically inclined. Oh, yeah. They, they, there's still a segment of the orthodontic population that isn't exposed to surgical orthodontics that will try to treat Everything. cases with camouflage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or some orthodontists say, I do not treat surgical cases, and then they'll send it to another orthodontist. Mm-hmm. And so they've learned quick. And that's another thing I guess I didn't realize, too, until you said it. It's true. The orthos are getting much better training in terms of the combination yeah. of us working with us. Mm-hmm. And so they are much more likely to refer a surgical case. They're comfortable managing yeah. surgical cases. Yeah, 100%. They're very comfortable. And, I think and the program, we're... I think we're the only program like that in Canada. And I know I compare it sometimes to North Carolina and Iowa and other surgical centers. We're like one of the bigger mm-hmm. in North yeah. America for volume and the exposures and the course contents. And it's worked out really well. Yeah. Well, that was one of the funny things that you said to me. I said, you know, listen, Marco, thanks for the patience. I'm booking my ORs. I got all this job surgery coming up. And you told me, these residents, they do too much jaw surgery. I need yeah. them doing other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, you got to bring something else. <laughs> yeah, bring something else to the table. Yeah. Well, it's also good that they get different methods. So I tell all the residents, you watch how every one of your staff take out a tooth. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You pick up the good uh, yeah. and see if you can point out the bad. And mm-hmm. uh, that's the only way you get better. So another thing that started up recently is the fellowship program at US. Can you give us a bit more information? Because a lot of people might not know about it. How did that start? What's it about? How do people apply? Kind of give us a rundown on the fellowship that's here. So our fellow, we've always had loosely associated fellowships, more on uh, single practitioners having an interested person from usually international to come and join. And that was part of my objective even five years ago was to establish a structured internship program, a structured clerkship program, and a structured temporomandibular joint in ortho. The the hard part was you're competing with other very good fellowships. So funding was an issue. Mm -hmm. And thank goodness I got Zimmer, Biomet, and Synthes. They both share on the funding for the fellowship, that, so that helps with Credit the small stipend. Mm-hmm. And then between Dr. Sutka and I, we have the fellowship has grown so much and the fellow is so busy that we're even thinking this is going to be divided now in wow. two, into an orthognathic fellow and a TM joint fellow. And awesome. would it still be combined that they go both with you and Dr. Sutka, or is each fellow going to be designated to one staff? It would probably be one fellow, one staff, yeah. or depending on the, so if I'm doing a total joint in orthognathic, yeah. that fellow might come okay. the, Combined, so we're trying to figure it out because the fellow is very busy. Yeah, uh, we're part. Eric Dirks was the one who uh, twisted my arm to get it involved with the American match for fellowship. Mm. So it's gotten a bit more um, exposure to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people know about it. So we have a lot of applicants from around the world, and it's tough. We had one person reject us, but oh, yeah, yeah. wow, because yeah. he had to go to. 
because I know it's Carolina oh, for the yeah. And then you keep the, crawling the back though. But he keep, he yeah. keep crawling back. Listen, though. I, listen, I keep crawling back. You know? He's like, can I please have a job? It's like, it's like that uh, famous quote. Just when I tried to get out, they pull me back in. <laughs> so they, the fellowship, and we, every year we've had just perfect fellows. It's worked fantastic. So looking forward to making that grow a little bit more. But still, it'll be a single TJO for the next two, three years. Okay, so, so the plan would be yeah, three, four years down the road. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. I need someone to take over my realm. <laughs> I mean, we talk, you know, you're obviously joking around here. We tend to joke a lot in this clinic. You mentioned Fritz Keenly. Yeah. I have to bring this up. It's not a bone <laughs> of mine to pick, but I, I have to bring it up. And I know he's listening. And, and I just you, saw him in the hallway. You just yeah. saw him in the hallway, also, And he reminded me today to tell you that he loves the podcast, but he listens at two times speed. Yeah. I don't know how he listens to my voice at two times speed, because I, I already speak quickly. I don't know how he listens at two so times he's speed. So he's a great listener then. We have a lot of people that are, you know, trying to hype up this. really boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're just super slow, but we have Miller saying 1.5, yeah. we have Nick saying 1.5. two is. Fritz is at two. I mean, it's getting a little out of control, but anyways, what I wanted to say about Fritz is, He's, he's complaining about his name coming up in the podcast in ways that he, he believes are not fair. So he's often complained that I have painted you and him in a poor light as talking about buying yachts during Sword Ortho Clinic, talking about all your fancy purchases and all the money you guys have. Did you, were you offended? Did you also feel mad when you listened to that segment while driving around in your brand new Porsche? <laughs> So I'll speak really slowly. <laughs> so he can so listen at four times. No, not upset at all. But actually, in a few months, you should get Fritz involved, and then we can have a segment on cars and Formula One. Yes. Which is our our hobby. We're 100% down for that one. Yeah. And for the record, the Porsche is a used car, <laughs> and, and, and my yacht is a medium-sized sailboat. <laughs> and they're ready to host you guys on the boat anytime. And I will say Fritz deserves more credit, though, because he does come out of his way to come down to Toronto for Sorge Ortho, yeah. so he gets credit for that. Yeah, and so. he's giving up a busy day to come down here, and he, he loves it. He's, he's a great addition. Oh. Even today, you know, he brings a different perspective. I really like it. And a different training from South Africa, and he trained with Johan Renica, mm -hmm. so just bouncing ideas off him, and Fritz is, you know, doesn't hold back on comments, and he's very pointed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful to him. And, and he's, he's a great friend. He came on in my like chief year and he was a great addition. Like mm -hmm. instantly just brought some, like you said, something different. And I'm like, wow. So I, I think everyone really enjoys having him here. Yeah, no, he's great. And you mentioned Formula One because Oscar's idea going forward for the CMS is to have a, a Formula One event. And you had emailed in saying you actually go all the time with Fritz. That's you get my early... favorite email that we've gotten. Yeah, we had, we had a great yeah. feedback from you. You said, you know, we, we get early access tickets. So you've been going to Formula One a long time, it sounds yes. like. Yep. Well, we went every year from about 98 to 2014. And then the, 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 the cigarette, there was a few <laughs> controversies with uh, Montreal. Uh, and then the past two years, we haven't gone. Mm -hmm. And then recently, we would just go for the day. But we used to make a whole weekend of it, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and, and restaurants. I even heard about this during residency when I guess I didn't like Formula One as much as I do now, but and then Dr. Lance was saying at one point, you guys, are, I think we're all there, and it's when you just first got a cell phone and everyone's like, no way, we're at Formula One and Dr. Kennedy's got a cell phone? It was a crazy weekend. <laughs> and I'm not that old. <laughs> and Oscar and I, we always review the feedback that comes in. We always say we love feedback. And we really do. We read every single email message we talk about. Yep. We text about it usually. And usually, you know, we'll talk on WhatsApp and we'll mention what's going on. But it's funny, this email comes in and Oscar calls me 
immediately and says, did you read Cam in his email? And I oh, never do. He never. He's it's, never always, it, it's always Wendell who's like, he's like, hey, did you read that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I read it. But I read this. I'm like, Wendell, did you see the, did you see the email? Yeah. <laughs> he's never been so excited to receive this email. And he's like, are we going in? You were giving me a little bit of flack because I, I said I can't go because it's my five-year anniversary that weekend this year. And you were... You were saying I'm, I'm supposed bring, to pick Formula One over the anniversary. Yeah, yeah. But, but let's also or mention Dr. C. He's going on three other trips <laughs> this year. Let's, let's not make it look like he's a stay-at-home husband. We've con- <laughs> had to reschedule Serge Oracle yeah. around Wendell's schedule. He's like, I can't go into my five-year, but I'm away for eight other weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so unfortunately this year I had to prioritize my marriage. That's okay. No, I'm in my first year and I'm ready to go, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think I was trying to mean to just fly in for the day, fly in. <laughs> yeah. So back to non-formal and more academic things. You're heavily involved in research at U of T and you were on my master's committee and you helped me quite a bit. Why do you think research is important to residents and why is a master's degree important? I find, when I saw the, that, to hear that question, I think it's partly as we we see research as a bit of a burden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's always why yeah. why is research, oh my God, why do I have to do a master's? Absolutely. And it is hard between the timing, four years is too short to do a master's. Yeah. Uh, one of the thoughts several years ago was to extend this to a five-year program, which would make it different than other programs, not attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you really need five years to do a proper master's. Mm-hmm. Ethics, consent, yeah. patient recruitment, Getting the right question to get an interesting topic is really hard. While you're still doing surgery. Yeah. yeah. And I acknowledge research is not for everyone. And it's not the determinant for being a great clinician. And one of the comments I find a little bit discouraging is that clinicians think that researchers or academics are not good clinicians. Yeah. I feel it's the opposite. If you, you can really excel in your clinical abilities if you're able to do research mm-hmm. at the same time and do good work like that. What I hope with the masters is that it improves our field. It improves oral surgery. Uh, I have a line that I like to say that it it, it separates us from the trades. It's true, though. Yeah. So it does make you think critically. Make you think critically. And the research doesn't have to be a CHR or NIH Mm -hmm. funded project from an interesting case that you have. Uh, Writing just a series. It doesn't have to be a randomized trial. Uh, As long as you're participating or you... And that's why the, with the residents, we have other staff, even community staff who have an interesting case, mm-hmm. work with the residents to present something, to talk about something, mm-hmm. to write about it. It's a great exercise. It gets your juices flowing. So I, that's, I consider that also part of research. So it's not sitting in a lab yeah. or look, sitting in a chart room looking at old charts. It's much more than that. And it's developing the profession. And I think it's, it's also helped, like even when we're doing our, our journal clubs, right? When we're reviewing these articles, mm-hmm. Most of my review is based on what I learned here through my master's to critically appraise articles, to be like, oh, yeah, well, superficial, this seems like a great article, but if you really dig into it, it's not very good at all. So and I, I think will, it's really beneficial. And I will find, I will say I find supervising the UT residents and coming to like the alumni event we had and looking at their presentations each week or at rounds, their knowledge of research and critically appraising is extremely high, like very, very high. And then especially their knowledge of statistical analysis and how to properly calculate yeah. is it's very impressive. Like it's, it's much higher than I've seen it in other places. Well, we get we've had luck with we uh, lost Mo <laughs> Mo Albani yeah. Harshmangat. Yes. Jeff Chadwick who's doing his PhD. Really brainiacs that uh, love. Research. I just sit back and and when most of my notes stats, I'd be like, oh my yeah. god, I go to the washroom. I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. But it's guys like Mo Albani who have, like if I've got I have a statistics book on my desk oh, right wow. here. Because I, I, I want yeah. to learn more about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Mo, what study? Oh, well, you should do a Cronbach Alpha for this. And so I'm reading on, and, and it's interesting. It's a, it's yeah, a, you couldn't present on, on academic grounds and present a study that didn't have research well done because Mo would be like, what does that say there? And you'd be like, the occlusion, just, yeah. you know? That's exactly, <laughs> let's go to the conclusion. Yeah. We've actually hyped up Mo a lot in this podcast. We have, yeah. and honestly, he is great. Though. We both love him, but how many maneuvers are in the book with Mo? Oh, I gotta get my phone <laughs> estimate. I think there's three or four. Three or four? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's not bad. Not too bad. Yeah. Maybe the average number. No, and we'll bring him on one day to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So speaking of you know research and projects, we wanted to do something new with you that we've actually never done before, which is, you know, we always have our journal club segment. We always have our resident reminder segment. We actually, we, we've decided to bring guests in for one of those segments because it helps keep the episode concise. And also we love... The insight opinion. that they give, yeah, sure. onto that segment. But with you, we've done something unique where we actually want to bring you on for both. We want to discuss a resident reminder topic with you, and we want to discuss your research as part of our journal club. So let's jump in. We have quite a few different projects or research parts that you've worked on in the past that we kind of want to go through. So let's. Can, let's... I, can I call Mo if you have any statistic <laughs> <laughs> questions? He's on my speed dial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we'll start with this one. This is one that we've discussed previously on the podcast. A little bit of controversial, maybe getting that too. So we'll start off with five fluorouracil is associated with a decreased recurrence risk in odontogenic keratosis management, a retrospective cohort study. So this is a study you did with uh, Mohamed El Rabini, as we <laughs> said, Justin yeah. Gion, and Grace Bradley. It obviously passed our pre-screening test. And just kind of for those that haven't seen your lecture <clears throat> or haven't read the article yet, tell us about what the premise is here. Why did you think about this? And what are you trying to accomplish with this study? This all happened more serendipitously in the late 90s when we were using car noise for keratocysts. And in some places, some hospitals, it's hard to get the car yeah. noise or the pharmacists don't put it Sick together. Sick kids, you gotta like apply yeah. to NASA to get that. <laughs> and we had a couple of cases with George that were taking out OKCs and I had just come off ENT and they were using 5-fluorouracil mm-hmm. for their basal cell carcinomas. They would pack it in place. And at the same time, research was looking that there's a relationship between KOTs and, and basal cell carcinomas. Mm-hmm. So we thought, let's, let's try this 5-FU because we couldn't get the car noise. And also car noise, for those of you who use it or you haven't used it, remember, it's, it's brutal. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. you know, you're supposed to time it in place, but what timed it was when your eyes started welling up with tears. <laughs> like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And so then you pull it out. <laughs> you'd have to Vaseline everything. It would burn everything. And, and then, it, you know, formalin in it. So that, that stopped. So since the late 90s, we just uh, kept using 5-SVU as an alternative to mm-hmm. car noise. And other centers will use liquid nitrogen. Other centers use all sorts. Of, there's a variety of adjunctive methods. And so we stuck with the car noise, and it's become sort of my pet project yep. for years. So it's been 20, almost 25 years of the use of the product. And, you know, the, always the criticisms, well, you have to make a study, do I got to do a proper study. So this paper is actually one with a, a, a clear-cut number of cases yeah. that mm-hmm. we were able to compare with the modified car noise and just show the difference in recurrences. And I think that is the good thing about research is you were using this technique a lot longer than you presented it, right? So, be, yeah. like, before the study came out, but you're like, yeah, if, I'm gonna, if it's going to be used elsewhere, if I'm going to say this, this actually works, I need to do a study to prove that. And I think that's what this does. Yeah, yeah and I think it's important to tell people exactly what you do uh, surgically because 
It's drummed up a lot of interest. We've talked about it on the podcast before. I just did my first case doing your protocol uh, last week. I talked to you in advance about that. So what you're doing is, you know, you're exposing after a nucleation and peripheral. You still do a peripheral ostectomy of the lesion and of the area. And then a sterile radiopaque quarter-inch ribbon gauze is coated or kind of soaked in 5% 5FU cream and packed into the surgical wound. This is then closed in the usual manner, and you kind of leave a little tail mm -hmm. of the ribbon gauze exposed that can be easily accessed. And 24 hours later, the patient can go home. They can come back the next day. The pack is removed. The area is irrigated out with saline. And then before removing the pack, you'll take a Panorex x-ray, which is kind of nice because it showed, did you access all the loculations? Did you access the whole system? It's kind of nice feedback. That there. pain was a nice pain in the article. It's a, yeah. <laughs> you know, let's be real. You picked the best one. <laughs> we know, we know, I, I would pick we, that we, one. We know how you don't need to be a that's master. The that's the occlusion. You know, yeah, you don't need to be a master to know that he probably picked the best one. And then you kind of you still follow them, obviously, afterwards. But that's is that just the general protocol? Is there anything that's you would protocol. add? No, that's a, well, and all those patients were treated identically with the same type of pack, the same type of formula, with one day post op mm -hmm. uh, removal two days, but short term. I follow them in six months at one year and I keep following them. And I use pan in the maxilla, I would take a CT because some, it's hard to tell recurrences yeah. with the plain pan. And in that segment of group, and that's one of the criticisms of paid because we had no recurrences. Mm -hmm. so, but that, in that very same study, that group of patients didn't have recurrences compared mm -hmm. to the modified carnoids. Mm -hmm. And I presented last year at Amos or in Nashville, uh, looking at the 25 year history mm -hmm. and an estimate, a crude estimate, would be uh, we still get recurrences, yeah. so about maybe four percent. So it's still Which is, quite low. That's quite but good. Very one low. of the things is when people are asking, "Yes, I'm doing a peripheral ostectomy, but now I'm at the point where people are using the five FU and I'm using it, so I'm paranoid. So when I'm taking out the cyst, I you scrape it every. I lick it clean. <laughs> <laughs> the bone is gone. You're not going to find anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to put in the 5FU and, and go to church on Sunday and then hopefully... <laughs> You're like, my name is on this technique. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I do believe that a very good debridement and nucleation is, is, is key. You just can't... Throw the 5FU in there. Yeah. 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 No, yeah, and I mean, and you don't know this part yet. This is kind of breaking news, but... I did receive a message from Jordan, who's a staff at McGill, one of my great friends here above me, mm -hmm. and they actually ordered a, he ordered a bottle of a tube of 5FU, because yeah. he was asking me how much you have to use, I said you have to code it, yeah. um, I said, you know, based on the protocol and things like that, and, you know, it sounds like they're going to give it a shot there too, because yeah. they really like the article and the protocol that you guys came up with. Yeah. So I think um, it works. It's not one of the biggest questions people are going to ask, because it was my number one question before I started this and read the article, was... What if the nerve is exposed? Is 5-FU okay? Does it cause any problems? No, uh, any nerve damage will be related to peripheral ostectomy mm -hmm. or debridement with your curettes, but it has no effect on nerves. Which is huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially when you were before using such a caustic solution that you'd be careful of anything. You can let it touch anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so it's a chemotherapeutic that's only affected on the dividing cells. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So the next article is actually, we dealt a lot with this during our residency, like during my residency, because you came on right where I was kind of in second year, so we dealt with this a lot. And the article is Clear Aligners in Orthognathic Splints, Marco Caminiti, and I'm going to ruin his name, so I'm going to call him Tim, because that's how Tim I know Lee. him. Tim Liu, who was an ortho resident at the same time that I was a surgical resident. And so this article, what was your idea behind this study? It was more a presentation on how to manage these cases because it was always controversial. You shouldn't be doing orthognathic yeah. surgery on clear aligners. We don't know. But the fact is, is uh, with an orthognathic practice, and now many orthodontists, commonplace now. 10, 20% of patients 
maybe more. Yeah. My wife's got an adult practice. A third of her patients are in clear liners. Yeah. She hates orthodontists called clear liners the plastic cancer. <laughs> oh, wow. But they have to do it. Yeah. What and, You said about almost 30% of her patients because she's an adult practice. What about you from a surgical point of view? What percentage of patients do you find? Uh, 20%. Wow. Yeah. That's not that's, that's high. Yeah. One in five high. consults are. So if you're not liners. able to provide that service, exactly. you're missing out. Yeah. Or they're going to go somewhere else. Exactly. Part of the problem people are saying, well, I, I, I don't really support the full fixed ortho still provides a better yes. outcome period but you're dealing with a situation that you've been presented to you yeah you're not going to change it we're not going backwards so that's the premise of the article is uh, with the past 10 15 years and mm -hmm. using clear aligners how to make the splints how to hold things together it's a challenging do you put arch bars back in do you put ortho appliances back in which the patients won't tolerate mm -hmm. so coming up with the clear aligner splint with the uh, uh, 3d systems we did the uh, uh, well, this is now 10 years, coming up with different designs on how to hold things together. Mm -hmm. And it was quite useful because the splint, and I remember you yeah. with me in one case, yeah. so you started giggling because like, you couldn't believe how... Like, you couldn't separate. You couldn't separate the Because honestly, the first time I went in, I'm like, what is this? Like, and I'm like, and you're like, just trust me, put it in it, like, it's going to get stuck. I'm like, there's no way it's holding it. <laughs> and then you're like, take it apart. I'm like, I can't. Like, it was physically so adhesive. Like, it was great. Yeah. We still use TADS to supplement it. If you have very shallow mandibular yeah. teeth, it won't have that huge undercut mm -hmm. effect. But it's just a method in helping with that temporary placement of your rigid fixation screws. Mm -hmm. So the, it was meant just more as a technique paper. And, and honestly, one of the best things about it is the name of the split. Chaos, Chaos split. Like it sounds well, good. This, this is a perfect segue. So. We know we hate acronyms. We hate acronyms. But I love this one. We love. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, too bad, it's too bad it's not called the Caminiti Splint, but <laughs> no. it could be like the off-label name. But this is my funny story about the Chaos Splint. So right when you were kind of, this hadn't been published yet, you were in the midst of kind of lecturing about it. You had held like a master's course in Toronto that you invited all the residents to from all the different programs. So I had come, you had presented for two days, and one of the things you presented on was clear aligners, and you talked about the clear aligner orthodontic splint, so C-A-O-S, the chaos splint. And I remember my mind was just blown, because I was getting to the senior level now, I'm dealing with these Invisalign patients, you're dealing with TADs, you're dealing with butt ends, it's always terrible, it's always miserable, it's always difficult. And then I was like, this is a solution, this is amazing. amazing. So I go back to McGill, getting ready to treat plant some patients, and your good friend, Tony Shahadi, <laughs> who you know very well, he has an Invisalign case and we're getting ready to do the virtual planning session. And I said, you know, Dr. Shahade, would you consider doing a chaos splint in this case? So he said, well, what do you mean a chaos splint? So I said, oh, it's like a clear aligner orthodontic splint. You look like Tony saying it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tool you can use for clear aligner cases. You know, Mark came and lectured on it, kind of developed this uh, splint, it's called the chaos splint. So he says, oh, you mean like a, a hybrid splint? And I said, I think it's called the chaos splint. <laughs> he was rattled. <laughs> and he was rattled because as you well know, and people listen to podcasts, like, Tony's a thinker. He, he, for him, it's not just surgery. It's not just patient. Like, he likes to think big picture. He likes to innovate. He like, he's a thinker. He likes, you know, the, the science yeah. behind it, the, pro, the art behind it. And you could just tell he was so mad that you thought about it. <laughs> so his response to me was, you know, Wendell, the chaos splint is not a patented name. Uh, it's just a splint with some flanges on it. He went legal. He's like, yeah. <laughs> so it was really funny. Now, to his credit, 
He said, let's do it. Yeah. And we did. And I remember I sent you pictures. I look, we yeah. did this case. We did use TADS. Because as you said, sometimes it doesn't fully engage. If you, yeah, yeah you, you have to use TADS. But uh, no, I, I think it's a really, really great tool for people that do a lot of Invisalign cases. Well, we're doing, a, so Harsh, man, got, who's doing his master's, we're looking at, and I have a large series of cases. I've done probably over 200 clear aligner mm-hmm. cases. And we have now, we're comparing 50 cases with clear aligners one year post-op, mm-hmm. with, and we're matching it with 50 full fixed. Insane to, to, to share that the skeletal relapse yeah. is is no different between the two methods. That's actually really Dentally, so there's an ortho resident in Michigan. She's looking at the orthodontic outcomes. Orthodontically, there is a difference. Oh, yeah. that's good. But job. skeletally, it's the yeah. same. It's the surgery. So just get past the occlusion slides. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just look at the profile. <laughs> well, you'll see even in the papers, I wrote another paper, and you can see a posterior open bites because mm-hmm. of the thickness of the splint, mm-hmm. uh, root torque you just can't get. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, it's not. It's never perfect. And what you said at the beginning, you're not saying clear lines is better, but you're faced with a challenge that How you have you to solve. Great. So the next article I wanted to bring up is the primary aneurysmal bone cyst of the temporomandibular joint. Multidisciplinary management with CAD-CAM total joint replacement in a unique patient population. This is why by Jeff Chadwick, he mentions a resident, Patricia Brooks, who's an oral pathologist, oral medicine, Iona Lung, who's the oral pathologist, and then yourself. So I wanted to bring this up because I know the authors so well. Jeff Chadwick was a GPR when I was in dental school. He obviously is a resident now. Patty Brooks, Patricia Brooks, she was actually my classmate in dental school. Oh. So we were classmates oh. at Western. Yeah, you had a wedding. Yeah, I was at their wedding. She's married to Jeff Chadwick. So, yeah, I'm saying, you know, this is, at the time, this was like a boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiance, whatever, yeah. you know, stage it was at production. I mean, that's must have been made things a little bit easier. You could just talk to one of them and they would kind of relay the You're information. Like, Go tell your significant other. I've never, seen, that. I've never <laughs> seen this before. We have kind of a married couple published together. It's pretty awesome. Well, I d- really never thought of it. <laughs> way, yeah. I didn't even know they, they were had, dating. Yeah. They all had good contributions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the other reason I want to bring up this article, because it's a nice little case uh, presentation, was before I came here, if someone asked me how many total joints does Margaret Kimmy do a year, I would have said zero. I had no idea you even did total joint replacement. Mm-hmm. I know you did these big, I mean, uh, okay, I would have known if it was at the same time as an orthodontic case, I would have said, yeah, for but sure. But you would not have assumed the amount that he's doing. Uh, definitely not. Sure. So I think it'd be good if you educate the listeners, like, you're obviously involved in that fellowship, but also doing these cases, so... How many cases would you say you do a year of like combined TJR and orthognathic or even just total joints by itself for its own reasons like this case? That was unique. So for pathology and extended temporomandibular joint replacement, for pathology, not that often. Most of my TJR cases will be associated with craniofacial anomaly. As we look at this picture behind us. Yeah. 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 So in my, my office here is the case she has Ehlers-Danlos, she had orthognathic surgery, idiopathic condylar or post-orthognathic condylar resorption, mm-hmm. so bilateral joint replacement. The hemifacial microsomics I treat with the total joint replacement. A month ago, we had a condylar agenesis, uh, Pierre Robin, that we re- was treated elsewhere. We retreated with total joints. So that's more or less the segment of the patient. So once a month, once every other month, I'm replacing a joint, yeah. mostly with and it's funny because yeah, you're. It's not that you're pegged, but a lot of people know you through your orthognathic, and they don't realize how much TJR stuff you really do. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know. now, so now that name is getting out. But you've been doing this a while, right? Yeah. Part of the fellowship, I don't think people would have known as much. I, I mean, I definitely didn't know. And yeah. some of the best times to assess is you just kind of survey other residents or other programs and what they think. And I think they know you as an orthognathic person. I don't think they would have known you as like a mm-hmm. TJR. No, and the TJR really is a, it's a, a, a. I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for. It's an adjunct for Dave Sutka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, the program that he's developed. 
we're using, I only, I haven't done any stock, I've done a couple of stock joints, mm -hmm. but once you go custom. You, know, <laughs> you can't go, oh, yeah. so once you go VSP, you're not going. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm going yeah, he's, oh. he's yeah, we don't want to get into that topic. Okay, that's a longer conversation. He's considering going back to the Stone Age, literally. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad for the residents. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm glad I'm gone. There's, yeah, there's, well, I had, had seen the fellow was over about a month or so ago, and in my condo I have a lab yep. and we had just a series it was the following Tuesday and Thursday that were all single jobs mm -hmm. so I did them all old school to mm -hmm. show him how to make a splint yeah and we made six splints while we had dinner and a couple of bottles it's of wine nice. yeah it was yeah. nice and it's a little bit cost effective you're mm -hmm. also doing it right before it's fresh in your mind yep you have a better feel for the occlusion so no I haven't abandoned so one thing that we wanted to mention next was I think Oscar has it, a letter to the editor. And, and we love letters to the editor. You know, people submit. Sometimes when you publish, you're putting yourself out there. You kind of mentioned now this is your five. If you said you feel so responsible for these cases, it's a little bit of a vulnerability to publish because you're putting your ideas up for the literally the world to, to see. Read and critique. Read and critique you. I mean, we critique an article every yeah. single month. Well, we try to be nice about and it. And we but. stand behind the mic where no one really sees us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No different than this podcast. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. You're putting yourself out and you'll, you have to. We just don't read the hate mail. <laughs> yeah, that, that we delete. So part of publishing is sometimes people will respond to your articles. So we, we have a nice little letter to the editor that we we dug up that was related to one of your articles. And again, I am biased because Dr. C is my program director. So when I read the first response, I kind of just laughed. And then I read the second response and then I was excited and happy and laughed even more. Yeah. Um, so this was in response, so let me take that in response to you, regarding the no novel transomal approach to the posterior lateral maxilla and infrotemporal region. So you and Dr. Lamb wrote an article about accessing that area with a new approach. And there was a response published by Dr. Peacock and Dr. Cabin in which they did congratulate you guys for publishing and for talking about but, it. But for the record, if you read, because I've been reading more of these and more now, every single critical, first of all, every single response is almost like a critical response. It's yeah. never like, hey, great job. Yeah. But it's, usually, it's usually something negative. Yeah. Every single one of them starts off with thank you so no, much. No, no, they're all passive aggressive. Yeah, they're all passive aggressive. It's like, I'm going to say thank you and then rip you apart. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And I think you, it's a mandatory. Yeah. It's like sending a text with a laugh out loud at the end. Like, yeah. even though, was it a joke or was it not a joke? So <laughs> they do say congratulations, but then they say that this approach has been used many times and they state all these articles where it already has been spoken of. And then they go as far back saying that the Egyptians would use this with the mummifications. And I was like, whoa, that's some serious research they're doing. <laughs> so yeah, they they didn't see it in the best light, said that it had already been talked about and they left it at, there is nothing new except what we have for, forgotten. And so that was the quote they left off. And then your reply with Dr. Lamb, I thought was, was really awesome. real done, kind of, destroyed every point that they gave because it said the articles Politely. you brought up. Yeah, polite. Again, oh, yeah. passive just, aggressive. You have a, to be. You, no, you, were just just, passive you were just as passive aggressive in your response. You have to be like, thank you for the critique. This <laughs> yeah. is why you're wrong. And it was because all the points they brought up, the articles didn't match what they even said. So it was, it was a very well thought out response. But my favorite line was instead in support, in, instead in support of our work and the scientific process at large, we prefer to state if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So not saying that we have learned everything and we just forgot it, it's that there's lots to learn, but we can use the people before us to learn further. So I was very impressed with the response there. Never say you come up with it. Yeah, because the, they were saying that we had we came up with the technique. And that's not what Obviously you guys are saying. No, no. Yes. Yeah. We're just uh, we're saying detailing that you can use. Exactly. 
yeah. but this is part of the world of academia and publishing is you have to be able to take criticism and respond to it in a professional manner yeah. because this happens all the time. And, and you can't get frustrated over it, right? Yeah. Because they'll publish something and someone will critique them and they publish a lot. So mm -hmm. like they go through the same thing. So I think it's right. Like you said, being able to respond in a professional way where you're not taking it to heart and you're saying, okay, I understand we're going to move on from this. Mm -hmm. Well, I do find, you know, there, there is a fine line to cross though. I mean, they, they really took the time to critique and, and respond and be quite critical. And, as you mentioned, they publish a lot too, and I think that if we were to critically look at a lot of their articles, there's a lot, yeah. you know, sometimes that's missing there. If too, I go down so. to the ancient Egyptians, I might find something else. <laughs> <laughs> so that concludes our journal club segment. We wanted to bring you in for uh, the resume reminder as well, and we actually wanted to tie it to one of your recent articles and something we talked about recently, which is surgical upwriting of second molars. So this is something that Oscar had great training. He was doing a lot of cases with you. This is something I did more in my fellowship, I would say, you know, in the private practice. And we had discussed kind of my recent experiences and my uh, success rate and, 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 you know, the challenges of doing this. So let's start off. Remember, we're explaining this as if it's a junior resident's never heard of this. So can you describe what is surgical upright in the second molar? Why are you doing it and how are you doing it? This, uh, a lot of this comes from my orthodontic referral base. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, you're doing more than most people. I, I expose more canines than take out wisdom yeah. teeth, right? Because of the, the population mm -hmm. that refers to me. Yeah. So second molar uprighting came from oftentimes the orthodontic, if orthodontists didn't take pens or the hygienists took over and they just did six to six mm -hmm. ortho and then they're debanding and they don't see the sevens. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they take a pan, they would send me the pan. <laughs> And say, like, oh, Marco, can you do Urgent. something? Yeah. Uh, so I get a lot of bottles of wine uh, yeah. on, on, on solving their problems. And this, both when Eddie and I, Eddie Rainish and I started Crescent Oral Surgery, we, it's a heavy ortho practice. So we both were using the same technique. And it, uh, we just tried to throw our hat into, let's try uprighting. We had read about it. We knew about it. Tony mm -hmm. Pogrel in the mid-90s wrote about it. And Eddie was trained in Michigan to do it. So it just started from that. Mm -hmm. There were different variations. Do we take out the eight or not? And then finally, this paper was, let's just do it consistent, similar to the 5FU. Mm -hmm. So now let's just look at a segment of our patients. We're going to take out the eights. We're going to upright it. We're going to bond a bracket if we have to, and on and on. So we just consistently, and by the numbers, we see a lot. A lot. We see a lot of these yeah. patients. And it works in that group that we treated that were young, just almost immediately periortho or postortho. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't work in someone who's 27 years old. Yeah. This will work in teenage years, late teens for sure. And so we came up with a certain specific protocol and it does take a learning curve in trying to upright that yes. seven. So a novice resident, you know, I'm standing behind, pull it up some more, some more. It's like, Dr. C, I'm gonna pull the tooth out. He goes, just before you take the tooth out, mm -hmm. <laughs> then you stop. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I can't, you know, there's a feel to it. And there, then, there definitely is because we, like again, when I was saying, we got to watch you do it a lot, right? And so we get to watch you and then, and then we get to try it. And it's like, you do make it look, and so does Dr. Renish, make it look quite easy. And it's like, okay, they're getting it up. And, it, and it's back in occlusion. Mm -hmm. First time I'm doing it, it's like, the tooth is going below you. Like, how did that make that worse? Like, what is happening here? And then, yeah, you go a little bit and you get scared and you get scared. But if you really watch, there is a decent amount of force and you have to trust that there is that point where you're going to get to. Yeah, just the height of contrast. And it's easy to explain to other surgeons. Surgeons, we all get it. Okay, mm -hmm. that's going to work. We mm -hmm. can luxate it into place. The hard part is convincing the orthodontist. Oh, yeah. 
the orthodox started like, this is an anathema. You could cut off the supply. You're going to kill the tooth. And the discussion with orthodox is that, okay, your options are to take the tooth out. Yeah, mm-hmm. which you're killing it already. Yeah, mm-hmm. or try this uprighting. So what do so you lose? With that logic, uprighting, it makes sense. And in our study of over 200 teeth, we, yeah, we lost about four teeth, mm-hmm. uh, some root fractures. But overall, the success is, it works well. And, and like, again, like you said, what is the alternative? Yeah. You're taking the tooth out, yeah. yeah, or you're leaving it buried. So either way, it's not an occlusion. Yeah. So in your current protocol, are you always removing the wisdom teeth at the same time? Yeah. Okay. Which is funny because we found that's right. Oh, that's how I. Was, that in the that's how I yeah. was taught with like with you and Dr. Renish. So for me, it was second nature. Mm-hmm. The eight always comes out, but there were some of those articles where they weren't taking the eights out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we started off not taking them out because we didn't know if this would work. Mm-hmm. But even if you took out the seven, if it failed. And it's very clearly shown that that uninterrupted eight will, never, not, come, will yeah. never come into place. Maxilla is different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mandible, you take out the seven, that eight doesn't come into place. Mm-hmm. And then transplanting and all that garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so then you take out the eight, you operate the seven, and then do you put anything in between the seven and the six? Yes. Any, any graft, any material to try and prevent uh, it? Just Surgicel. So okay. I'll pack it with Surgicel so it doesn't fall back in the hole. Mm-hmm. If it's unstable with the Surgicel, I will blob some composite. Mm-hmm. I just put composite between the seven yeah. and six and hold it in place. Mm-hmm. Make sure it's out of occlusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems is if you upright it too much, the upper six <laughs> will knock it back down. So that's one of the limitations. And then if you had a preference, would you put a bracket, not put a bracket? I like putting a bracket because then I have control of the gingiva. So I'll put the gingiva underneath the bracket. Mm-hmm. So essentially apically repositioning yeah. it. Sometimes I'll put a tad. In the gingiva, I'll ah. pin the gingiva down to the external oblique ridge just to make sure it doesn't cover over the crown again. It's funny because I just had a GA day lap two weeks ago and I put the bracket because of that gingiva. It really does, the, 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 the molar bracket holds it down. And oh, use I a big molar bracket with a big hook yeah. and then the, the gingiva gets stuck underneath it. Now, if you were speaking to a new resident doing this for the first time, what's the number one tip you would give them? What's the, what's the, the, the number one thing they Clinical. need to realize? Yeah. Clinical pearl that you would tell them to kind of help them along to doing this? Procedure. Yeah, I have to get a good idea on the pen where the height of contour is going to be. So there's two things. is the height of contour of the six and the occlusion above on how far you can do it. Obviously, the root morphology, if you have dilacerated roots and it's a horizontal yeah. seven, it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to try. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but most of them are mesoangular. Mm-hmm. You have to tell them that the patient that you might crack a root. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the height of contour looking at the occlusion. But then the rest is all feel. It's all feel. So that's hard to teach. Yeah. So you need an intra-op pen because it's going to be short the first time you do it. <laughs> it's not going to be the full way up. And a lot of the body looks actually, you're like, man, that, that looks, looks good. good. And you get your pen, you're like, you're like, is that another mesoangular <laughs> eight? <laughs> the eight regrow? Like, Did I do anything? <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Well, that concludes our resident reminder section. As I said, you're in the unique guest in that we can, we could probably do all the sections with you to be honest. Yeah, seriously. Talk surgery all day. Yeah. So uh, let's hop back into our questions that we had for you. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was we've been hyping up Iceland a lot this mm. summer. Annual meetings happening. And for those that aren't aware, registration is actually now open for the 67th annual meeting. It's in July in Iceland, July 17th to 20th. And now you can actually see the full program and information on the social events, all the tours. This is kind of a unique meeting in it that is. it's kind of like half conference, half like we're going to Iceland. Like they, yeah. I'm happy they recognize they that. that up. Yeah, people know that they're going to Iceland. They're making a trip out of it. They want to see yeah, Iceland. Iceland. So, you know, there's a dedicated tour day, which is not really, you know, standard for a conference. There's different social events based on 
Iceland's like top attractions. Mm -hmm. So registration's available, it's all online at caoms.com. And under the links, you go to current events. And one thing people will see Monday, I mean, this is a big announcement. I'm not sure if you're aware of this yet, but Monday, end of the day, 4.30 p.m., we've been kind of hyping up that Oscar and I have been, you know, teasing something big is happening at the annual event, but we're doing our first ever live recording of Teeth and Titanium in front of everyone in the big hall Ooh, in, Iceland. in Iceland. And then we're getting sent home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Oscar, you'll fix your hair for that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, I'll shave too. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to bring people to Iceland. What is going to bring people? So along those lines, that leads to the question, are you coming? I can't. I want to. Oh, I, I was, I was, like, oh. oh. was going to say I would love yeah. to come. Yeah. Uh, it's his anniversary. I, I was on the website <laughs> and I looked at the little song you have going with this. Yeah. yeah. I loved yeah. it. And, uh, my favorite topic implants yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but my wife and i for 25 years she takes off the last week of july i think okay. the first week of all of this, so that's all planned and yeah so bring it it's not it's not off the uh, no, <laughs> He's like, come on, we're going warm. I told, my, I told my wife Iceland and she kind of gave yeah. me the ice yeah yeah, yeah. she's like yeah you're going <laughs> to yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's not off the books i might like doing pop by yeah, pop that would by. be exciting yeah. would, when you when you look at the schedule you're going to prioritize the tour day or the teeth and titanium yeah, live episode day teeth and titanium live i'll be in the audience okay well we'll be sad to miss you but i, I think it's going to be a great conference and so honestly for me you'll probably be the favorite guest always because you were my program director but so along those lines any shout outs you'd like to give uh, yeah, I find uh, giving shout outs is hard because there's so many yeah. people and I'm so blessed in the OMFS community. It's such a, an amazing group. I mean, I have mentors really that I give shout outs to in Canada and starting with uh, Pierre Rick Laundry. I think he's oh. everybody loves Pierre Rick. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Tony, Tony Shahadi, Julia, Ben Davis, who he and I are close friends mm -hmm. from high school. Uh, Nick McCool, shout out Miller. I love Miller Smith. He's always trying to get me to come skiing, and yeah, I tell one year, year, one year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Claudio Tokyo, my my old partner, who's retiring. I just had dinner with him last week, and he's he's done. He's, wow, uh, mm -hmm. taking that's a big name. Away. Yeah. Maybe you should follow his example. You know, maybe and retire. Yeah. <laughs> when does like so? <laughs> you better learn your cat's class. <laughs> So do you want me to take you for dinner next week? Or? <laughs> and then U.S. Uh, big people that helped me along the way, Mike Maloro, Tony Pogrel, Jim Swift has been a great uh, help, Louis Mercury, Eric Dirks, Brian Bell, Louis Vega. I don't know if you guys know mm -hmm. He's uh, awesome. But there's so many, I'm sure I'm going to forget a bunch of people. My partners at Crescent, so Eddie, Brian, Peter, yeah. um, uh, the group. And, and of course, and I mentioned them before, my partners here at the university. Yeah. So I'll shout out to them. Uh, you know, I'm happy I'm doing it. I love this job. And it's because of people like that. So. No, that's awesome. that's awesome. And we can tell, like the residents here, and I think Wendell can tell too, that you love this job. Like you're very good at it. The residents enjoy being residents here. Yeah, I think they have a great relation with you. Yeah, no, good group. So that brings us to the end of our interview with you. And be honest with us, you, you've been waiting almost a couple of years now. Did, did it live up to the hype? Do you feel relieved? Lived up that, to the hype. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you lived up to the hype too, so we're good. Yeah. <laughs> still, awesome. still waiting for that bottle of whiskey. <laughs> it's at the dinner next it's week. Dinner next yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Marco, thanks so much pleasure for, uh, for coming on. It, it, was, it was great. It was long overdue. I really enjoyed having you, and we appreciate you taking the time. Super. Thank you very much.
Okay, Oscar, it's our final segment of recommendations. Before we get into that, I just wanted to clarify something. You know, Marco mentioned how he has these surgical maneuvers and he's got like this black book of everyone. <laughs> he mentioned he has two for me already. One of them was legit. I won't go into details. One of them was legit. But the throwback thing he's talking about, that's a McGill thing. That doesn't count. No. You, you can't, I, I, you can't you know take what? things from a different city and a different residency. And, and so I agree with that because I was I was impressed. I'm like, wow, Wendell's got two already. I'm like, this is not looking good for the guy. <laughs> not looking good. <laughs> I'm like, he's been there five months. This is escalating quickly. <laughs> uh, but I will say, I think you really only have one because that other one doesn't count. That's your residency. Yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah. You start yeah. fresh so Mark- when you move to a new place. Yeah, Marco, delete that one from your little journal. That shouldn't be in there. It was no, illegitimate Because if we with. call Brian Farrell, you probably already have 15. <laughs> yeah, you know, you got the McGill Journal, you got the Charlotte Journal, now you, keep, you got the Toronto you Journal. Keep journal separate. You call them geographic successes, right? Like you just it, keep it, transitioning. <laughs> and then if his journal builds up, I'll just move to another yeah, yeah, city. Exactly. We're going to Manitoba. Here we come. <laughs> yeah, here we come. So yeah, for recommendations, first of all, I wanted to follow up on a recommendation you gave last time that I agreed with, which was Dexter. But I told you I hadn't finished. Yeah. Watching. So I want to comment. You didn't want to comment, and I and I love that because no spoilers, and we still have to have no spoilers here. But I'm glad you didn't comment either way because I didn't know where you were going with that comment. Could have been the finale was ridiculous, or the finale was amazing, or yeah. you didn't like it. We won't go into spoilers, but both of us, I messaged you as soon as I was done, and I said I hated that finale. I really didn't like yeah. it, and you said the same thing. Yeah, and and so if we, you're a Dexter fan, honestly, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It does, but I will say, even knowing that. The ending we didn't like and I still watch and, 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 and oh, i still recommend it i still watch it yeah there, there's no because question. it's 10 episodes for nine and a half episodes it was amazing yeah and the, his character is identical for nine and a half episodes yes and yeah. it's so good yeah especially if you're a dexter fan so we highly recommend that it's kind of like game of thrones game of thrones ending was terrible but i still tell everyone to watch it i would it. still you watch, watch it, it for sure yeah you still have to watch it so definitely definitely wanted to say that also i'll let you go first on your recommendation because mine i feel like is going to drum up a little bit of angst between us oh okay well so honestly like you said before at the beginning, a lot of what I've been doing is trying to learn how to ski. So our weekends are kind of occupied that we're going up to Blue Mountain. Haven't really had that much free time to watch or do anything else. But I have recently just started the last season of Ozark. And so I've mm-hmm. only watched two episodes so far. I, I like the first, all the other seasons. So, so far, I still like this one right now. That's pretty much the only recommendation I have right now. Other people who are ahead of me on the show said they like the season. So I'm going to continue with it, but I don't have anything particular like this is I'm really into this because mainly what I've been doing is trying to learn how to ski. Yeah. Maybe your recommendation is to get out there and learn how to ski. Oh, or I, I, and if, you know what? If I can take it back and say that I'm my parents are South American, so we never really did winter sports. I was going to say, I don't think people know about you. You're from Uruguay. Yeah. So my, my dad's from Uruguay. My mom is from Ecuador. So South America. I don't think people know that because I never met anyone else from there. Yeah. Well, there's only three million people in Uruguay. Tiny. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a tiny country. Ecuador is pretty small, too. So, yeah, South American, we didn't really know any sports other than soccer. That's the only sport you played for mm-hmm. any South American household. So I didn't ski, didn't do anything of that. Makes the winter a lot longer, to be honest. Lexi's the complete opposite. Grew up in Pembroke. Very like winter family, always skiing, always skating, always doing things like that. I had always complained about the winter. So she's like, you know what? The only way to make it better is to actually enjoy it. So that's why we took up where well, I started taking up skiing this, this year. And she's making the effort to, to make me go. And it's been amazing. Like we have so much fun and it really does make your weekends go by faster because you're doing something. You're not just standing around or sitting around at home. We, we get up, we go on Saturday, we ski, we stay overnight, we ski Sunday. It's an awesome time. So yeah, you know what? My recommendation shouldn't be any more TV. It should be get out and do something new and something different. Yeah, that's a great recommendation, especially if, if they're learning for the first time. I mean, if you if you as a South American can do it, I think I feel like anyone oh, can do it. 100%. If I can do it, 
Anybody can do it. So my recommendation was is going to be a book. And I think here we go. I, I like the fact that I sometimes I bring books and I, I feel like some of our audience, you know, rolls their eyes probably because they're like they don't read books. So they think it's a waste of time. You mean your time. co-host? <laughs> I was thinking of you, but I, I, I know for a fact some people have reached out to me saying thanks for the book recommendation. I've downloaded the audiobook or I'm reading it or I ordered the physical copy. So I, I know some people like it. You know, I previously said Sometimes I Lie by Alice Feeney was mm-hmm. one of the most mind blowing books I wrote because there's so many good twists. And mm-hmm. You refuse to read books. You said this is the one book you would read. I purchased the book for you. I spent my own money you did. on a book for and this you. Is like, and this I is sent new it to you. Oral surgeon money, not like yes. work in 10, 15 years money. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was very costly to me. It came, it caused a fight between you and Lexi. It did. I thought you were trying to send a message <laughs> to her divorce. Your <laughs> Yeah. And then she read the book. Yeah. First. Yep. Yeah. And then she gave it to you and told you to read it as well. Yeah. And now I'm, it's funny because we talked about this recently. I'm two days into it, but I won't talk about the, that book at all until I finish it and give you my honest Perfect. opinion. Perfect. Yeah. I want your honest opinion, but I need to tell you something, which is what I told everyone else is just keep reading it. Okay. Like you just that's keep ki- reading it. That's kind of what Lexi I, said too. I don't want an opinion until you get to the end, like yeah. literally the end. Yeah. Okay. But the book I wanted to recommend was by Andy Weir. It's called Project Hail Mary. So this is the guy, I don't know if you know, he wrote the book, The Martian, which became a movie with Matt Damon. Yeah. Really good movie. Yeah. So he writes all these kind of sci-fi books. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one was The Martian, became a movie. Great movie. I highly recommend. The second one was his book called Artemis. It hasn't been made in a movie, but it's also very entertaining. But the third book is called Project Hail Mary. And it came out like last year. It's already been uh, purchased as a movie. Oh, wow. And Ryan Gosling is going to play the main actor. It's already going to be like a big Hollywood movie. This is one of my favorite books ever. Wow. Now, this, sometimes I lie, I said anyone could read and I think yeah. you'd enjoy it. This is, it's a sci-fi book. Yeah. So you have to like things like space, you know, saving the world, like kind of like end of the world scenario, yeah. like trying to save Earth, thing like that. And if you like sci-fi, you're like, if you like space, especially like the concept of the universe, stars, like physics, like not like, you know, deep into it, but like that kind of stuff. This is honestly one of my favorite books I've ever read wow. in my entire life. I That's really, a really liked review. it. Oh, I couldn't stop. I so when are you buying me this thing? My birthday. <laughs> no, this one you're buying yourself. <laughs> this one, if you like something alive, then you're going to read yeah. this one. Because this one's really good. Especially if people like sci-fi, I cannot recommend this book enough. And if you like it, then go read his other two books because you'll probably like them too. Okay, awesome. But uh, I would start with Project Hail Mary. I thought it was really, really good. And that's my recommendation. No, that's exciting. Okay, so maybe I inspired Oscar to, to pick up a book and read. Maybe I'm inspiring some of you. Maybe I'm not. You can let us know. Uh, I don't know if you're inspired, but you definitely forced me to pick it up. <laughs> well, I, I, I spend money. You know, you have yeah. to read this one book. And I'm going to be quizzing you to make sure yeah, you actually read it. Exactly. <laughs> so please reach out to us. We love hearing from you guys. Thanks to everyone that emailed us. Teeth and Titanium, OMFS at gmail.com. It's been great. Another episode in the books, Oscar. And I will talk to you next time. See you next month.